This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. It's so nice to be back. A little extended vacay for me, but uh, there was some really great content in the meantime. You had a good pick, bad pick. One episode for the public, two if you're a patron, we'll, we'll, I don't need to lay that on you just yet. Though. Listen to the whole show. We'll, we'll plug it a couple more times. But I, we hope you enjoy this uh, this free edition of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. Okay. The, the podcast, by the way, will always be free. And uh, But Brian, we got to sprinkle out our promos throughout. We don't want to lay it on too thick because we do have a lot of exciting announcements to make. But, of course, we want to get to all the content. Because like I said a couple weeks ago, okay, so a couple weeks ago we did that great Good Pick, Bad Pick episode with Dave bet and we've had a lot of good feedback about that so maybe we'll have to do a version three at some point that was a lot of fun if you didn't listen to that i think you'll enjoy it uh before that we did a show after july 1st covering a bunch of the big trades and free agent signings we covered you know panarin going to the rangers and you know uh Phil Kessel getting traded and Tyson Barry and like we covered like a lot of the big ones but now there's still so many that we haven't covered and so that's what we're gonna do in this week's show and I'm really excited about it before we get into it of course let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com super proud to be presented by them they're gonna be having their fantasy guide coming out any week now but in the meantime this is bubble keeper week on Dauber Hockey, and it's been really fun following all their articles all week long. Just lots of articles about players who a lot of a lot of us are deciding, like, should I keep them in my keeper league or not? You know, they've had articles, you know, talking about like Ristolainen or Shea Weber or you know, like Justin Schultz, Donskoy. I guess that's for a super deep league. There was uh, some like Trubas. You know, like a lot of interesting articles with this like concept of if they're a bubble keeper and if you should keep them or not. So yeah, it's a lot of fun happening on DauberHockey.com. But we're about to have a lot of fun on keeping Carlson. And so why don't we get started? I, my plan is to clear the deck, right? I want to talk about every single relevant transaction that we haven't covered yet in the offseason. So after that, we're set and ready to move into talking about next season. And I want to start in Dallas because they lost Matt Zuccarello to free agency. So that was a bummer. They also lost Jason Spezza to free agency, which I'm sure they don't care about. Uh, but 
I think they made up for it because they signed Joe Pavelski to a three-year deal. They also signed Corey Perry to a one-year deal. They even took a shot at Andre Sekera from the Oilers for a one-year deal. We'll see if that works out for them. Obviously, the the big news here is Joe Pavelski coming to the Dallas Stars. Got to imagine, this is going to be a great landing spot for Pavelski, right? Because he will slot nicely into a top six that already has Sagan, Ben, and Radulov, as well as a group of hints. Maybe Corey Perry, maybe that rounds out the top six, as well as on uh, all of a sudden, like, really star-studded top power play. Imagine this. Sagan, Ben, Radulov, Pavelski, Klingberg. That's the top power play that teams facing Dallas are going to have to look at. Damn, that might be a really awesome unit if they could, you know, figure out the chemistry and all of that stuff. Uh, Keep in mind, Matt Zuccarello came into a similar role and he put up three points in two regular season games and then 11 points in 13 playoff games. So Zuccarello was really thriving in the role that I think Joe Pavelski is about to step into. And I don't think it's controversial to say that Pavelski is a better player than Matt Zuccarello. So I'm really excited about Joe Pavelski. He's 35 years old, but he's coming off a really solid season. He put up 38 goals, 26 assists for 64 points in 75 games. It's a 70-point pace. He's been above a 66-point pace for the past six seasons now, and he doesn't seem to be slowing down. Uh, I know, Brian, when you talk about him, you're going to bring up his high shooting percentage from this past season. But still, I find it hard not to project another, say, like 70 points at least as his pace with the exposure he'll be getting to all of these stars on Dallas. What do you think? Well, let me first say that I am also uh, opt- like I'm happy that Pavelski landed where he did. I think Dallas is a good new spot for him. I had some angst about Pavelski uh, as his contract expired, thinking about him. Well, first, just the mental image of him wearing any jersey other than the Sharks is kind of a trip. And then also uh, Pavelski moving out of San Jose means he's moving to a depth chart where he may not be so much the guy anymore or one of the guys. Uh, Like I found it hard to imagine where Pavelski could end up and still be in as good a place to put up big points as he was in San Jose. Cause the teams for whom a 35 year old Joe Pavelski would have to be their number one center and he'd get that great deployment just didn't match the profile of a team that should actually try and go out and sign him, which meant that Pavelski was probably going to have to be a second line centerman somewhere. And maybe without the line mates he's had the last few years, including Couture, Vander Kane, Timo Meyer, Joe Thornton, and Patrick Marlowe a few years back. But I do really like Dallas as a landing spot because of that top power play that you already mentioned, Elon. Think about Pavelski up there. That's a nice place for him to try and keep those power play point totals up above 20 for another year, maybe two. But at five on five, I find it hard to maintain the same optimism for Joe Pavelski. Are we going to see 19 or 20 minutes a night from him like we did in San Jose? Probably not. And there's also a chance uh, that Pavelski is the only star figuratively, not literally, because there's going to be three stars on his line, including him. But there's a chance he's the only, you know, uh, stud on his line if he does end up with Corey Perry and Rupe Hintz, who both have their own upside, but are not the bona fides that Pavelski has had with him on a line the last several seasons. Of course, there is a best case scenario where Pavelski gets to play with one of Radulov or Ben as Dallas shifts lines around to try and have a top six with full and actual depth for the first time in years, which is also exciting to think of those possibilities. Uh, But we don't know that's going to happen. It's not automatic. And so we need to consider this change of deployment uh, and change of scenery in tandem with the actual numbers that he put up last year. So even if he had stayed in San Jose, I'd have pointed out that Pavelski's five-on-five shooting percentage from last year, uh, it was at 16% for the third time in his long 
and uh, storied career. But Pavelski is generally closer to 10% shooting when everything's going normally for him. And that shooting percentage from 10 to 16%, like that, that accounts for like seven or eight of his 21 goals at five on five. Uh, Pavelski also had an unsustainable shooting percentage on the power play, which if we're even being generous, probably got him like an extra three or so goals than normally would have. And I'm just not seeing any other way to justify those extra even strength and power play goals outside of saying, yeah, shooting percentage spike, it happened to work out for him. So there's no denying that Pavelski had a great year last year, 38 goals. And on an 82 game pace, he'd have broken 40 He'd have had 42 goals. That would mark a career high in his age 34 season. But I just can't expect the same again this year, not with his new set two C status and not with fewer minutes and not with expected regression to his shooting percentages. I think Joe Pavelski is much more a 25, 30 goal guy than he is a 40 goal guy. And that's even if he is like a top line center or top line right wing. So I'm actually going to land closer to the 25 goal mark for Joe Pavelski next year, which is like a big cut, right? He had 38 last year, pays for 42 and I'm seeing 25 goals. So I hear that. And I tried to talk myself out of it, but I couldn't. Uh, but what I am going to do for Joe Pavelski is is try and get him towards 40 assists, which would bring him to 65 points. But to do that, he's going to need either a rebirthed Corey Perry, a broken out Rupe Hintz, or lots of five-on-five time with one of Ben Radulov. I don't know, maybe there's even a world where he plays with Sagan at even strength. And all of those scenarios are, are big question marks, right? We don't know that Hintz and Perry are going to be uh, really great line mates for him. We don't know that if that doesn't happen, that he's going to get to spend time with Ben and Radulov. The difficulty also for me in pinning exactly where Pavelski goes in this new role is that he hasn't had this role for a very long time. Like Pavelski has been seeing 19 minutes a game since his age 24 season. That was his third season in the league. And while trying to talk myself out of saying Pavelski is not going to hit 70 points, I'm trying to also remember that time that I counted him out of repeating a big performance back in the early fledgling days of keeping Carlson. I think that was like our first season. He had just had a big, big breakout. And I was like, nah, he's not going to keep taking shots the way he did. So he's not going to keep scoring the goals he did. Well, he actually did keep up those shot counts. So good for him. Uh, But this time, I think I'm going to be right. I don't see much reason to hope for more than 65 points from Joe Pavelski, which is kind of a bummer, but also just the natural order of things. I don't know, Brian. I feel like I'm a bit surprised that you're like so confident or it sounds like you're really in on this. Like he's going to have to play with Rupe Hintz and Corey Perry. Like last year, Matt Zuccarello came in and I think they've been dying to get Jamie Ben on the second line and split up, you know, Sagan, Radulov and Ben like forever. They just then had no, you know, people for Ben to play with and they didn't like having them all on the top lines and they had no depth for the rest of the lineup. I think this is the opportunity that I think it's going to be almost for sure in my mind. I haven't even considered what you're saying. Like I've been thinking it's going to be Pavelski with Jamie Ben and someone else and maybe leave Rupe Hintz to play with Sagan and Radulov on the top line because he was clicking so well with them at the end of last season. And I feel like if you've got Ben and Pavelski on the second line together, that's a great situation. I don't see why they wouldn't give those guys big minutes. Like Jamie Ben plays big minutes. Like why would they want to you know stack the top line in terms of ice them give them each like 23 minutes a game and lower it on the second line i think they would play them both pretty evenly plus i love his situation on the power play so i think when we record our almanac which i'll talk about in a second i think we're gonna be uh differing on our projections i think i'm gonna go closer to 70 it sounds like you're closer to 65 Uh, we'll see obviously the deployment makes a big difference but i really don't see the deployment going the way that you seem to be implying 
But what I'm even saying is that Pavelski, to get those 40 assists on top of his 25 goals, he's going to need Jamie Benn with him, which is why I'm still like, okay, I can get to 65 points for Joe Pavelski. I can be optimistic about his deployment scenario. But even if that all breaks right, I don't think he's scoring more than 25 goals or a lot more than 25 goals. And I also don't think he's getting more than 40 assists at this point either. So like those are those are both, I think, the peaks of what his performance is capable of. And if everything breaks right and well for him, he's got 65. I don't see him shooting 20% again this year. Uh, and, and I don't see any other route, like aside from unsustainable shooting percentage, like if somehow these these spikes and, and weirdnesses and variants stick, which they generally don't, then yeah, I, I just don't see a way for him to do it with every piece of variance in check. Yeah, okay. I know that you don't see him scoring more than 25 goals. I guess I'm saying I do see him maybe scoring 30 goals. And uh, well, no, but I you, were, you were saying that like, oh, like I'm totally discounting the chance he plays with Jamie Benn. Uh, not at all. He can play with Jamie Benn. Like he needs to play with Jamie Benn. Yeah. And let's actually talk about Jamie Benn. So let's move on because aside from Pavelski, you know, and talking about him, there's all these other players that are now affected by him showing up. And I feel like Jamie Benn, he's the one that jumps out to me because he's coming off his worst season since he was a rookie as he ended with a sad 53 points in 78 games for a 56 point pace what he had 79 points just the season before he had a fall in points just like you're projecting for joe pavelski but uh ben i feel like is still a really good player and i think a lot of it had to do with the fact that while he did have some time with sagan and radulov like we were discussing he spent a lot of time playing with the likes of blake como radic faxa jason spezza jason dickinson joel lesperance like not the types of guys that you're going to be putting up big even strength points with no matter how good of a player you are and by the way since i'm mentioning random players mason did make an interesting comment in the chat room saying maybe like gurianov or dickinson could be good sleeper in a deep league to the guys that could maybe get on that second line so yeah we're obviously been throwing out a lot of names i don't want to just imply that Corey perry like for sure is getting on that second line but anyways back to jamie ben like I said, he had bad line mates, and I'd imagine when he did get his ice time on the Sagan and Radulov line, they were always facing the opposition's top D, since the other lines like weren't threats at all. So other teams would be like, yeah, put our best people against that stacked top line. Now, Ben is pretty much guaranteed to always be playing with at least one of Sagan, Radulov, or Pavelski, maybe even two. Uh, and the Stars' opponents will now have to spread out their defenses over these top two lines. So I feel like this everything is shaking out to me that Ben is a prime bounce-back candidate for next season. I'd be very curious to know how you would rank him, Radulov, and Pavelski next season because I feel like all three of those Stars are very intriguing right now. I know you're putting Pavelski last from what you just said. But yeah, are you with me that Jamie Ben is a guy that's probably going to fall in drafts later than you've ever been able to get him especially in a league that counts hits, by the way, because he's still been great for that. And I, I could see him now finally with a good line made at even strength and also obviously uh, improved top power play. I feel like he could maybe get back to like 75, maybe 80 points. Let me know if I'm being too crazy here. No, I don't think so. I think Pavelski coming to Dallas is a great fail safe for Jamie Ben. right? If the coach doesn't like him or he's not performing and they want to shuffle him around, he won't have Sagan, but he's going to have Pavelski. He's got someone else he can really meaningfully succeed with. And that's a that's a real thumbs up for Jamie Ben going into this year. You look at his season last year, Jamie Ben had a bad time. He had a low five-on-five five IBP, a low five-on-five on-ice five on shooting percentage. He was knocked off the top power play for the first time since breaking out in his age 22, 23-year-old seasons. And when he was on the top power play, he had an abysmal power play IPP, uh, 
which means he just could not get himself to be uh, to get a point on any goals that were scored. Uh, his secondary assists dried up in all situations. And beneath all of that variance, like all of those things are things that can fluctuate randomly without really reflecting much of a player's effort or talent outside of those things there weren't really any large flags about Jamie Ben's play there. So that's why I'm excited about him bouncing back, but how much of a bounce back is something we need to keep in mind because there is one piece that I'm not sure he's got a full bounce back in him for. And that's the shots on goal piece. Like even if all the other things do regress in a positive way, uh, Jamie Ben on his own accord has fallen off his huge shooting paces from the mid 2010s when you could count on him for like 250 shots on goal, maybe more. But in two of the last three years, Jamie Ben has paced for 215 or fewer shots on goal. So look, I'd like Jamie Ben to become a three shot per game guy again to restore full faith in his ability, but I'm not certain that's in the cards. But in any case, shots on goal aside, I'm still happy with 200 or more shots, 25, 30 goals, 45 assists from Ben, which comes to, yeah, like a 70, 75 point bounce back season. I'm really not so concerned about him. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, right? Because normally uh, before last season, you had to use like a second round pick, maybe if you were lucky to get Jamie Ben. I remember people would be so excited if they could get Ben and Sagan in the first two rounds. Guess what? Now you can get Ben and Sagan in the first two rounds if you want. Uh, but obviously there is the chance Ben has shown us that maybe he's just falling off. Like it could just, but you're saying, Brian, that a lot of the underlying numbers look good for him and it was low variance. So yeah, we're, we're all in on Ben. We're keeping Ben this year. Brian, what do you think about my ranking question? If we had to rank who you want to draft between Ben and Radulov, Pavelski for next season. How would you rank them? Uh, if it's a hits league, I'll go. I'll still go Ben first. If it's not, I think I'll go Radulov. I think Ben's ceiling might be a little higher, but I also wonder if he'll be used just a an eeny teeny bit less. Okay, and then Pavelski down at the bottom after Rupe hints after Corey Perry. Oh no! After no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's cover uh, another couple guys since we're here on Dallas before jumping to the Sharks to gauge the impact of Pavelski leaving. Uh, seems like Pavelski arriving should be like a good news, bad news situation for someone like Rupe Hintz, who we've brought up a couple of times already. He made a big splash at the end of last season. He put up four goals and seven assists in his final 14 games after getting on the top line with Sagan Radulov, as well as on the top power play because Zuccarello was injured. Uh, Hintz also had eight points in 13 playoff games. So just a really solid guy for the team. Uh, on the plus side, seems like he'll have a much better chance of holding that line one job since the stars can feel okay leaving Ben Pavelski and someone else like Corey Perry say on the second line like we've been discussing uh, on the minus side I feel like there's no way Hints gets more of that top power play time unless someone gets injured because who are you bumping out of Pavelski Ben Sagan Radulov to give Hints a spot on the top power play uh, so the way I see it Hints is 50 point pace on the second power play in the playoffs because in the playoffs, Zuccarello was there, right? And Hintz put up a 50-point pace. Uh, that seems like a lot more of a likely outcome than like the 65-point pace he was putting up in that final stretch in the regular season. Still, even like a 50-point pace, maybe you could bounce that up to 55. That could be a really nice late pick in a draft. I'm not like as excited about Rupe Hintz as some people are, just because I feel like there is a ceiling for players who aren't likely to see top power play time. But I still think he's a guy that we should have on our radars and should probably be drafted in most leagues next season. Totally. If he's in the Dallas top six, he's playing with either Tyler Sagan or Joe Pavelski. So you want him. He's going to be involved in some offense. Elon, I agree that he's not going to be very involved in the top power play unless there's an injury or unless for whatever reason the Stars get really cocky with their new depth by having Joe Pavelski and try and have two 
power plays running evenly, which would no just way. be an awful decision. But hence you could probably count on. I think 50 points seems fair. Maybe he can pick up about 10 power play points from the second unit and then maybe 40, maybe 45 at even strength, depending on how well things are going. Yeah. Hey, maybe Miro Haskinen is amazing at running a power play. That second power play will be okay. But still, yeah, like 10, 10, maybe 15 if we're lucky power play points for Rupe Hins. Okay, then we have Corey Perry. Uh, we waited until February for him to play his first game last season. And we were rewarded with a sad 10 points in 31 games. Like, you know, Brian, sometimes we recommend for people in the last round of a draft, oh, take an injured guy, throw him in your IR. Then it's like you get a free player, you know, come the second half of the season when you need him most for the fantasy playoffs or whatever. Uh, so anyone who did that, hopefully, obviously they didn't have to use a high pick for Corey Perry and good because he stunk. Like I said, 10 points in 31 games. It was like that rotten treasure box in Survivor Pearl Islands. I don't know if you remember that. Like all the, both tribes had a treasure box and then when you won reward challenges, I guess you got keys and then at some point you got all the keys to unlock the locks and then like everything was spoiled and it was, it, 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 that was that's what to me what Corey Perry was last season. I was excited for him to come and then it ended up being a big bummer. Uh, still, it was only one season prior that Perry gave us a solid 49 points in 71 games for a 57-point pace. That's not too bad. At 34, he's obviously a far cry from the Perry of old, but do you see any chance that he could be worth looking at in drafts, or do you see him as more of like a watchlist guy? Maybe he'll be good for stretches. You know, we'll mention on keeping Carlson when he's playing on a good line, but maybe he's more of like a bottom sixer at this point. Like, I'm kind of curious to see. I, you've kind of always liked Corey Perry, I feel like. So I feel like you're going to say that maybe you would take a chance on him. But like right off the bat, you would prefer like a Rupe Hints over Corey Perry, right? So, um, well, first I'll correct you. I don't think I've always liked Corey Perry. In fact, I've been, I think I was amongst the first to suggest that, uh, you know, after his, uh, his, his uh, 2014-15 season where he pays for 67 points. I'm pretty sure I said this is as good as it's going right. to get. And sure enough, he went to 62 points after that in pace, 53 points after that, 57 points after that. And okay, then- yeah. Brian, actually, uh, th- you're right. Th- that was a classic. This is a classic Brian Com. everyone. Like, Brian, like, says a player is not that good, and then he's usually right, and they go down, and then all of a sudden you flip, and now you're like, now that <laughs> player is good because he's like, too underrated. And you're like, no, he's still good because you do like the old guys. So yeah, I'm thinking more of the more recent liking old Corey Perry when everyone else says he's garbage. You're like, oh, maybe there's still something there. <laughs> but yeah, okay. you've definitely called it before. Yeah, so I would say that Corey Perry is a huge wild card for this season, except for the fact that, you know, when I say that, you expect that maybe there's some huge shot at upside. And I want to drive home the point that that's not what I'm saying, consistent with my previous takes on Corey Perry, that his best days are behind him. But here's why I'm still going to say that, yes, Elon, you're right. I am bullish on Corey Perry to be fantasy relevant next season. Uh, These are my reasons. First, Last season, uh, his five-on-five shot generation numbers, they looked okay. Not his strongest outing, but not fall off a cliff bad. Also, I want you to remember that he was on an Anaheim team that literally sunk everybody on it. Getzlaff, Raquel, Fowler. The dunks sunk Corey Perry too, and that shows in his abysmal 4.5% five-on-five on-ice shooting percentage, which is just awful. Like, you hope that you have twice that amount. And that's reasonably normal. Like that's not asking for a whole lot to have a 9% on ice shooting percentage. Uh, Corey Perry, while he was on the ice, the Ducks shot four and a half percent brutal. Also last season, Corey Perry was on the second power play, which frankly, I expect the same to happen in Dallas. But we need to remember that when accounting for the reasons why Corey Corey Perry failed to meet expectations that might've been a little higher than they would have been had we known he wasn't going to be on the second power play. And finally, here's one more reason why I'm bullish on Corey Perry having some kind of rebound this season. Uh, He played 31 games, 
spent almost 500 minutes on the ice, but got zero secondary assists. Like Corey Perry has never been mistaken for a setup man, but that's weird even for him to play 31 games and not just happen by accident to pick up a secondary assist. And that again speaks to how much trouble the Ducks had scoring. That's a big piece of that puzzle. Uh, And of course, uh, another reason to be bullish on Corey Perry is probably going to have Pavelski or maybe even Tyler Sagan as a centerman, depending on how the chips fall. Probably Pavelski, though. Last year, Corey Perry started with Ryan Getzlaff, but 20 of his 30 games ended up being with Adam Henrique or Devin Shore as a centerman. He also averaged just 14 and a half minutes a game. So all this to say... Corey, Pre- Corey Perry is in a better situation in Dallas this year, uh, one where he is much better set up for success than he was in Anaheim last year. Like, again, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty sure that 30 or more goals, 65 or more points from Corey Perry is not going to happen again, especially without 20 power play points to help him get there. But I don't think it's unreasonable to hope for, like, I don't know, 20 goals, 30, 35 assists. So depending on the depth of your league, He's either a solid mid or bottom roster guy to have or a good guy to stream in potentially for spot stars. I don't think he's somebody in most leagues that you need to reach for on draft day. But, the you know, on a night early on in the first couple weeks of the season where you have an empty roster spot and looking for someone to stream in, he might be someone I look to. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. He seems like the kind of guy to me where we're going to find out really soon if he still has anything or not, right? So maybe he'll get a chance on that second line, like you said, and then either he can cut it and he'll stay there for a while, or they'll realize kind of like with Jason Spezza, you know, it's like, oh, this guy doesn't have it anymore. And then he'll just like, you know, his deployment will go down and he'll just be a totally worthless guy. So he's going to be a tough guy to project when we do our almanac. I feel like he's going to have a lot of variance on him in terms of our projection. Why don't we get to talking about the almanac? Okay, so I'll sprinkle one of our little promos because Brian, we have gotten to work. Like this is serious. This is happening. We are going to be recording the world's second ever NHL audio almanac in just like three weeks now. We're starting to record on August 16th. I'm so scared because we have so much work to do and it's coming up and I'm super excited for it. I've already prepped three teams and uh, by the end, hopefully by the time we start, I'll have prepped them all and so will you and then we'll be off and running. Uh, but yeah, the, the plan is that we're taking a week off of work and we're going to record an audio book, a 32 chapter audio book, one chapter per team where we're going to break down Every single player that we think is fantasy relevant on that team will discuss it just like we discussed on our episodes of Keeping Carlson. And in the end, we're going to come up with a projection for each player. We have a few other fun mechanisms we're going to throw in that we didn't do last year, like marking which players we think might have a bit more variance to them. Uh, we're also going to have a fun way of not having to argue so much about goalies. If you remember last year, we're going to fix that problem. But yeah, I'm really excited for it. And we'd love for you to get in on the pre-order. It's available to order right now at keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. And you're thinking, why do I need to pre-order it? I'll just wait till it's out and they tell me that it's ready to go and I'll get it then. Well, let me tell you some reasons. First of all, you'll be able to watch our recordings live or have access to them early before the final edited product is done. Uh, Second of all, we're offering a couple other little perks, such as we've been doing some slow drafts with the pre-orderers and we're going to keep doing that. So right now we have five people signed up for like the next slow draft, which we're about to start. It's been a lot of fun. A slow draft is like a regular draft, except we take like, you know, everyone has like up to 12 hours to make their pick. Obviously it goes faster than that. And it's really fun to just take turns, pick by pick and get a lot of practice drafting before next season. And also we get to learn a lot of lessons about what players people are high on and not. It's been a lot of fun. So you could get in on a slow draft. Uh, Okay. So I could say more things, but I feel like I want to get back to talking hockey. But Brian, I'm very excited for this almanac. And people, I would love for you to get in on it. So you could check out keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. 
if you want to get in on it. Ooh, Brian, why don't you quickly tell people about the other thing we're selling related to the Almanac, this chapter sponsorship, because I feel like yeah. I'm talking too much. If you've ever had a message that you want to send out to the Keeping Carlson masses, maybe it's about uh, your business, or maybe it's about like a personal cause you care about, or maybe you just want to S-talk your competition ahead of the fantasy season. We have this option this year where you can sponsor a chapter of the Almanac and you tell us what you want us to talk about. And for 60 seconds, we will do that. Uh, you can like give us an exact script to read or you can just give us a general sense or, or whatever. Uh, and we will dedicate uh, a portion of your chosen Almanac chapter. So if you wanted to go in the Toronto chapter or the Montreal chapter, the boss, whatever, we'll put it in there for you uh, to get all the details and more. You can head over to keepingcarlson.com slash sponsor to check out what is, what's entailed in yeah. sponsoring a chapter of the 2019-20 Keeping Carlson Almanac. Yeah. Uh, and also you can see which chapters are still available to sponsor because we've been updating it as the orders have been pouring in. And by I say pouring in, we've gotten three so far. So still yeah. lots open. Forget, maybe- if, if you wanted Vancouver, you're on to your second choice. If you wanted Vancouver and Anaheim, on to your third choice. <laughs> if you wanted Vancouver, Anaheim, and Smorgoli's board, so- sorry, you've got to take your fourth choice. Okay. Uh, so with that, let's stop with the promo. This is an ad-free episode, aside from us promoting ourselves. We're betting on ourselves, just like Robin Leonard, who we'll get to in a little bit. But, uh, yeah, now we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, and then we actually have a very big announcement coming later in the show. Uh, but let's get back to the San Jose Sharks now, who lose Joe Pavelski, and let's see how that looks for them. So last season, uh, looks like the top two lines were generally either Pavelski, Couture, Meyer, and then Hurdle, Kane, Donskoy, or sometimes they went with Couture, Hurdle, Meyer, and then Pavelski, Kane, Donskoy. So okay, either way, and the third line was almost always Thornton, LeBanc, and Marcus Sorensen. So that's sort of giving you this sense of how things were before. Now with both Pavelski and Donskoy gone, that opens up two spots in the top six. And uh, one player that jumps out at me, first of all, that I feel like must get a crack at the top six now, it's got to be Kevin LeBanc, right? Because LeBanc has been on the top power play, but always playing on that third line. But like I said, now there are open spots available to play with the likes of Logan Couture, Timo Meyer, Tomas Hurdle, Evander Kane. And like, why not put Kevin LeBanc there? They, they got him on this like super team friendly one year, $1 million deal after a 56 point season. I have no idea why he agreed to that. But either way, now it's time for him to prove himself. And I think the team's going to give him a chance to do it. If he's going to be slated for top six, plus if he could keep that top power play deployment, why not? I feel like LeBanc could probably build on his career year that he just had with his 56-point season. Maybe it's time for him to break 60 in year four of his career. What do you think? This could be the year that Kevin breaks LeBanc, and we've been Uh. waiting for this to happen. LeBanc paced for 56 points last season with only 14 minutes of ice per game. So you want to see, okay, well, he's making really efficient use of his minutes. Where does he rank in five-on-five points per 60 minutes amongst skaters? Well, he ranks around 60th, which is actually kind of an interesting place to be first. It establishes himself, like, if you want to do a quick and dirty uh, top six, uh, you know, calculation, you've got six top six players on 30 NHL, 31, excuse me, NHL teams, uh, there's a lot more, right? Like 60th is a pretty good place to be within that framework. Uh, and then you look at the players around LeBanc in uh, his points per 60 production at even strength. You've got Radulov, Tyler Sagan, Jonathan Tate, Sam Reinhart, Tyler Bertuzzi, who might be another good guy to be thinking of considering this exact stat. Uh, Evander Kane, TJ Oshie, all in the same neighborhood. So you have guys of different flavors in there, right? Like you've got some superstars who have 
the sky's the limit. You've got some guys like TJ Oshie. It's like, yeah, 55 points. Sure. Um, and that's good news for Kevin LeBanc to be in that kind of company. Also, uh, what he really shone in last year was his time on the top unit. He wasn't on the top unit all season long, but when he got there, he was very efficient in getting points while, uh, while up on that top power play. He was just outside the top 25 in power play points per 60 minutes. Uh, so Kevin LeBanc actually had 20 power play points last season with less than a 50% share of his team's power play time, which again, uh, just like scoring 56 points uh, in 14 minutes of ice time, not very common. And yet I don't see anything weird or jarring happening inside either those power play minutes or those five on five minutes. Things look pretty sustainable for what Kevin LeBanc has been doing. And I'm bringing up, of course, these points per 60 metrics, just because it feels like we can safely assume uh, he's going to see more than 14 minutes of ice per game next season, right? Uh, he's he's bet on himself, like you said, Elon, or maybe you're talking about Robin Lehner and us, but Kevin LeBanc is another guy who did it. If I were him, I would fire my agent unless they have like some secret document where he's been promised something bigger next season. It was very strange. But in any case, the Sharks must feel like they owe him something. They don't even need to feel that way. He's good. He's a good player. They should want to use him. So with Kevin LeBanc getting extra minutes and the assumption that he's going to keep up at least the same rates, which, like I said, looks sustainable to me, uh, LeBanc should be a lock to break 60 points, maybe even get 65. I would love a full season on the top power play for him. That's sort of the X factor here. He needs to be on there long enough to at least collect 15 power play points on the season. He can survive without 20, but he's going to need at least 15 to really get a, a really solid crack at breaking 60. Okay, that seems fair. And hey, he was getting a lot of top power play time last season, and now Joe Pavelski's gone. So they not only have to replace, if for him to not make it, they'd have to have two other guys that get on top of on there instead of him. I guess obviously they could go the two defensemen situation sometime. But yeah, I really like LeBanc for next season. I feel like he's going to fall in a lot of drafts. That's what we've been seeing in our slow drafts, right? I don't even think he's been taken in a couple of them, or if he has, it's been like super late. So yeah, it'll be really fun to see his slow draft ADP, and then it'll be uh, fun to project him in the Almanac. You're saying maybe 65. I wonder if you put your money where your mouth is and actually plop down 65 in that spreadsheet. But okay, speaking of the power play, or actually no, speaking of LeBanc, one thing I guess that could go against him is I feel like he was pretty good. Like that third line with Thornton, Sorensen, and LeBanc, like as we saw, he did really well. So what if they decide we like that third line? And then, but then of course they do have to put someone out there to replace Donskoy and Pavelski. And like, who do they really have to replace these guys? Like Melker, Carlson. Um, I'm trying to think like Barclay, Goudreau, like they they have to come up with some names to put there. So I feel like LeBanc has to at least get a crack. Uh, But okay, speaking of that power play, last season they most often went with either Couture, Hurdle, LeBanc, Pavelski, and then one of their defensemen like Carlson or Burns. And then sometimes they put both D on with Couture, Hurdle, and Pavelski. So either way, we have a spot to fill. And I think the most common name I've been hearing is people that are saying they benefit from all of this is Timo Meyer. And like, oh boy, Timo Meyer is coming off an amazing third season where he put up 30 goals and 66 points in 78 games. That's again, 30 goals and 66 points in 78 games. And that was with like no top power play time. He only had 10 power play points and he still had such an amazing season. And now if Timo Meyer is going to be the guy to take Pavelski's spot on the top power play unit, what if you turn that 10 power play points into like 25 power play? Does that San Jose power play knows how to score some goals? We might be looking at a point per game, maybe higher Timo Meyer. Like this guy already kind of had a breakout and now I feel like he can have a second breakout. We might, we might be on the precipice of a point per game Timo Meyer season. 
Maybe hire Timo Meyer. I love that as Timo's slogan for 2019, 2020, except I'm with you, Elon. I feel like it's more a certainly hire for Timo Meyer. There are zero reasons to disbelieve in Meyer's performance last season, as I desperately hope I made clear all the way through the 2018-19 campaign on our show. Meyer pays for 69 points, and like you said, Elon, only 10 of them came on the power play, which we marveled at all season long, pointing out the elite company that Timo Meyer joined by scoring so many points in a season without that top power play production. Uh, Meyer ranked 24th in the entire NHL in five-on-five points scored. So a full season on the top power play unit should get him into 80-point territory. I agree. I'm in for point-per-game Timo Meyer, except... Again, this power play one thing is kind of tough. Like, I don't know it's a guarantee that Meyer gets up there. Maybe San Jose spends more time working with a power play that has only one of Meyer or LeBanc, uh, or LeBanc, excuse me, so that they have both Eric Carlson and Brent Burns on the top unit, which we saw some playing with last year. We just don't know how they're going to play that top unit. I, I would love to see both Meyer and LeBanc on the top unit, but then that means Carlson's not on it. Like, there's so many different configurations. Right. So we'll see what what they go with. It feels like it could be something that shifts, you know, every 10 games or so. Uh, Carlson, Meyer, LeBanc get shuffled on or off through the year. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But definitely things can't get any worse for Meyer, who was never on the top power play before. So, yeah, I think point per game Meyer is going to happen. I think we're going to be taking that swing in the almanac. I'm excited to put that down onto paper. And by paper, I mean a spreadsheet in Google. So, Brian, we talked about Matt Zuccarello before when we were talking about the stars and how he left. Let's take a look at him now in his new home in Minnesota after signing a five-year $30 million contract. Uh, Zook is 31 years old. He's coming off his best ever season in terms of point pace. He put up 40 points in 48 games with the Rangers. And then he had only those couple games with the Stars. But overall, 68 point pace for Matt Zuccarello. So fantastic season for him. Before that, he'd been hovering around like a 55 to 62 point pace for the previous five seasons. He's been a super consistent fantasy contributor. And then last season, he showed us he may even have ceiling for higher. Though, now he goes to Minnesota a team that many in our patron Facebook group are like super down on currently. Uh, Brad, I believe it was you who wrote saying they're maybe the team that you're least interested in drafting players from. You, you said something funny, like you were talking to your wife who wasn't even paying attention and telling her that uh, you think Minnesota might be a team that you might want to draft players from. But uh, I don't know, like, let me just throw out, let me play devil's advocate here because maybe this, the Minnesota wild, like aren't as bad as people think they are, right? Like they could still potentially fill a top six with guys like, you know, Eric Stahl, Koivu, Zach Parisi, Jason Zucker. Uh, they've got Fiala, who's supposed to be, I don't know. So, so people have told me before that Kevin Fiala is a good player. He got traded for Granlin. Uh, they have Ryan Donato, who uh, we saw a lot of good things from last season. There's Zuccarello himself, right? So you could have like six of these guys and it could be like a decently talented, uh, you know, top six. Plus there are guys like Joel Erickson Eck, Jordan Greenway, uh, Nico Sturm. Like I've heard good things about all these guys. Maybe one of them is going to be ready to take a step forward. And don't forget that Matt Dumba, should be healthy next season. And he's someone that we expected to make a big impact last season. He was making a big impact before he got injured. I feel like Dumba being there might, you know, help their power play, might help uh, some players get some more points of even strength. So I wonder if maybe things aren't as bad for Minnesota as people are saying. And like, if things were to fall right with like, you know, they'll need these, their older guys to all stay healthy and not fall off. Like, and I know Stahl already did fall off and Parise, he was great, but it's tough for him to stay healthy. So yeah, I'm saying it's a lot of ifs, right? And also Fiala, you know, it would help if he finally reaches his potential if Donato 
continues to impress. Like, but if all of that happens, perhaps we have some decent line mates and even strengthen the top power play for Zuccarello, right? Or, or is that too many ifs? But uh, yeah, I'm just curious to know if you think there's any chance Zuccarello can continue what he did last season, or are we going back to more like a 55 point kind of ceiling for Zuc? Fans of the wild surely appreciate your optimism, Elon, but I want to revisit the reasons for your optimism that Minnesota top six that you tried. I, I, I know you tried to look at through rose colored glasses, but I just want to look through them one at a time. First, you have Eric Stahl in his age 35 year coming off a bad season that he should bounce back from, but still 35 year old Eric Stahl. Then you mentioned Miko Koivu. He, who is going into his age 36 season, who is uh, fragile, seems more or less done has a 47 point pace over the last two seasons. Then you have Zach Parisi at 35 years old this year. Uh, fragile had a great year last year i think he probably could repeat something similar so he is a bright spot so long as he can stay stay healthy then you have jason zucker who is clearly not liked by minnesota by the number of times they tried to trade him so i'm like i expect they'll still give him the best deployment possible they should want to if they still want to deal him give it to him for his trade value but that just doesn't feel like a a a warm and fuzzy situation there and then you've got kevin fiala and ryan denano who all sort of lump together and say yeah these are two guys with promise who i still think could be good hockey players uh, but they're question marks still at this point so there's a lot of flags there and that's that's the minnesota top six right there tons of ifs and zuccarello is one of the things about that minnesota top six that is not an if uh, he's turning 32. I expect him to get a chance to shine, uh, but it's just a very weird situation where I just hope that Zuccarello can meet the standard he's set for himself rather than get real starry eyed and hope he can beat it. And why I say Zuccarello isn't an if, because I believe that he is a 55, 60 point player. Uh, that's who he was when he was playing with Kevin Hayes and Derek Stepan as his centerman. Uh, some success with Mika Zvanejad helped push him above that last year, but I don't think that Eric Stahl can rise to be quite that level of centerman for Zuccarello. So I'm just going to say that where Zuccarello had a shot, if he'd stayed put in New York or otherwise had for sure a great centerman to play with on a totally functional team, uh, he could repeat a big year. He could repeat a shot at getting 65 points. But without that, I'm just not sure Zuccarello has the opportunity to outdo himself as a member of the Minnesota Wild. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I was trying to be optimistic, but yeah, Ryan in the chat said Minnesota is where the new NHL retirement home is. And that's kind of what it's looking like. I also, I didn't even mention Ryan Suter. Like it would help if he could still be good. He kind of had a down right. year last like, year. <laughs> Matt Dumba, you mentioned, great. Like he's going to have a good season. He's going to be great. He's a fantastic defenseman, uh, has like all the tools. Good for him. Ryan Suter, eh, like, yeah, he had a pretty good year for times last year. I, I don't think that he's going to get any better unfortunately and Jared Spurgeon's still there he's going to be okay um but just up front it's not it's not the tidiest situation sure but a lot of the ifs are like health related right like I feel like there is a chance are they though well Stahl like Parisi like these are good players Stahl was actually having a really good year last year his overall numbers aren't good I'm looking forward to digging into Stahl in the almanac because he started really strong and then fell off but maybe you know that first part is more representative of what he still is able to do. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And it'll. But I, I do think also in terms of like you know if you're looking at Devin Dubnik, who's probably going to fall in a lot of goalie rankings, we're going to talk about a bunch of goalies in a second. Like I don't know if Minnesota's like as bad as people think. Like I would be happy, you know, like you know is me. Devin Brian. Dubnik, a reason to think that Minnesota isn't as bad. No, I'm just saying more like I'd be okay with maybe drafting Devin Dubnik. Like I think he's going to fall far enough in drafts that I feel like it might he might end up being a good value guy to draft over someone like say Semyon Varlamov. I don't know if that's a good transition or not, but let's o- switch over to some goalie talk now because we saw a bunch of teams swap around some starters and backups, and I want to get up to speed on who's on which team. And the New York Islanders 
uh, didn't get Panarin. They weren't able to re-sign Robin Leonard. So they ended up settling for re-signing Anders Lee. And then they inked Semyon Varlamov to a four-year, $20 million deal. Varlamov's coming off a down season for him. He put up only a 909 save percentage overall. But really, like, that doesn't even tell the whole story of last season for Varlamov. He actually started great. He had a 926 save percentage in the first quarter of the year and then pretty much completely fell off and eventually lost the starting job to Philip Grubauer by the end. Uh, what we expected to be a 1A, 1B situation turned into Grubauer playing eight games in a row down the stretch to help the Avs get into the playoffs. And then Varlamov rode the bench for the entirety of the series versus Calgary and San Jose. Jose. So Varlamov went from being like the starter to a uh, 1A, 1B situation to like a complete backup. And obviously it's not all his fault. Like Grubauer was insane. Like obviously they needed to play Grubauer. But yeah, Varlamov obviously uh, doesn't sound too good for him for a team signing a new goalie to a four-year deal that's injury prone and has just been relegated to a backup the season before. Still, okay, Varlamov was good when he was healthy in 2017-18. He put up a 9.20 save percentage. And I guess the Islanders are hoping that that's the Varley that they're going to be getting for the next four years. And of course, keep in mind that last season, Thomas Grice played in 43 games, playing tandem with Robin Leonard. And he put up an amazing 9.27 save percentage in the process. So, but like, what do you think is going on here? The, the money Varley is getting makes me think he'll be a starter, but it's probably in the Islanders' best interest to go with a 1A, 1B situation once again, like they did last year. Maybe that is actually what they're planning. Because I think that's what makes sense for Varlamov. Like, this guy can't handle a full workload, but maybe it could work out on the Islanders, you know, playing under Barry Trotz on a team that knows how to protect their goalies. Maybe, like, Varlamov actually could be a good guy to draft here as long as you're accepting the fact that this guy's not going to be playing like 60 games maybe he's going to play similar numbers of games as robin leonard did last year varlamov going to the islanders was a real head scratcher right let's just rewind to when it happened everyone was like well they let laner walk so they could sign varlamov and everyone was trying to figure out why and the best justification that i heard for it was that uh maybe varlamov him signing in New for the Islanders can help convince fellow Russian goaltending prospect Ilya Sorokin to actually leave Russia and come play for the team. Like that, that's the best thing that I could come close to believing or understanding why Varlamov was signed by the Islanders. And if that's the best justification that I could personally get for it, uh, not a great situation. I, I'm not sure why the Isles would want to invest in a player like Varlamov who's been inconsistent both in his play and his health, especially when it sounded like the Isles could have kept Laner had they wanted to make a similar commitment to him. And by the way, they also have Thomas Grice, who had a fantastic season last year, which I'll get to in a minute. But the first news for, for the good news for anyone interested in Varlamov is that the Isles do a pretty good job of protecting their goalie. Uh, the bad news is that that's not really a market change from what he was getting in Colorado. It's kind of a lateral move that way. Um, so Varlamov could have a good season in Long Island, or he could follow the exact same trajectory as 18-19. Start fine, fall off, lose job. I also want to point out that Varlamov is not walking onto an Isles team that's like, oh yeah, they were a 48-win team last year. That's a great thing for him to be a part of. A big part of that season is now gone. Robin Lehner and his 930 save percentage were almost solely responsible for a handful of those wins. So Varlamov, if he wants to be on a 48-win team, he's going to have to do the same if he wants to get the same results. And uh, I will also throw out there that according to uh, goal saved above average or delta save percentage, uh, Grice was a better goalie than Varlamov last year and over the three years before that. Grice was actually first in the NHL in goal saved above average for 60 minutes last year. Uh, he was second in the whole NHL in five-on-five save percentage amongst goalies who'd played at least 30 games, only behind Jordan Bennington. For that matter, 
Uh, you look at the top six in five-on-five save percentage last year, you've got Grace, Laner, and Halak all within the top six, all goalies that the Islanders, for some reason, were not interested in trusting. Instead, they go out and sign Varlamov, who was tied 29th in five-on-five save percentage last year, uh, tied with guys like Brian Elliott, Cam Ward, and Anders Nilsson. So it, it's a it's a real head-scratcher for me what the Islanders are doing here. Uh, I don't really want a piece of it. If you're thinking of getting a piece of it, um, the two things you need to consider when trying to determine whether Varlamov is going to start more than 40 games, it depends on two things. First, if he can be superhuman Varlamov for much of the season, so that guy who plays over and above his head for long stretches. And the second piece is going to be how stubborn the Islanders are going to be about playing him when he isn't the best version of himself as a guy that they just committed to for four years, let maybe the best goaltending performance they've had in decades. I would need to check their numbers, but to let that guy walk, bring in this guy, you wonder just how many times they're going to double down on Varlamov. So that's another factor on whether he plays more than 40 games. And then of course there's the health situation too. I don't know. He's someone that I wouldn't be excited at all to draft. Like I'd be looking at him as one part of a tandem and I'd be looking at Grice, hoping that someone takes Varlamov and then I can just spot start Grice whenever I know he's going to get a game in. Yeah, well, Ryan is saying like maybe the value in Varlamov is you handcuff him and you get the tandem on the Islanders. And we've been toying around with this idea in drafting strategy. Maybe you grab a tandem, especially if you think it's going to start a tandem and then one goalie is going to earn the job. And kind of then, you know, then you could drop one of the goalies and then you basically have a starter that you drafted late in a draft because people thought they'd be a tandem. It sounds like you're saying that you think that Grice is going to end up. Is this going to be another uh, Halak? Uh, prediction from last year where you boldly said that you thought Halak would steal the job from Rask and you were right for a bit but then in the end you know it didn't work out completely are you going to say that again now that you think Grice is going to steal the job from Varlamov or do you think they're going to be stubborn like you say like I don't think they will be like the Islanders they're still going for the playoffs right like they're probably going to play the goal that they think is best and to be fair like Varlamov started last season strong he has shown like you said that he can be superhuman Varlamov or at least a pretty good Varlamov every once in a while for stretches of games, maybe they just will do what they did last year. Maybe both goalies can be decent. But yeah, which one would you pick if you could only have one? Sounds like you're saying Grice. But let's say, I think you said that more because you were saying you assume Barlamov's going to get picked first. But let's say you're picking an Islanders goalie now. You could have either. You can't wait. Which one would you take? Man, if, if I want numbers, like I'm talking save percentage or goals against average, if your league counts that, I want Grice. If I'm looking for save volume, I'm going to go... Uh, Semyon Varlamov. I, I do think the Isles are going to be somewhat stubborn about keeping him in net as often as they can. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to uh, make an actual decision, taking everything into account when we do our almanac. We'll okay, ourselves- so you're asking me who I want first. I will take, like, in a draft, I'll take Varlamov because I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of interest in Grace, and I'll be able to swap out whenever I can. Whereas if I did it the other way around and took Grace, I think someone else would jump on Varlamov. Yeah. Also, by the way, like Ryan again saying in the chat, like, he had the grice Leonard combo in his league last year. That got him to second place. Like, it, that was a really great tandem to own so who knows maybe it could be again except replacing robin leonard with semi and varlamov who knows but yeah there's a lot of concerns with him uh next up how about we take a look at who varlamov is replacing in robin leonard who decided to bet on himself like we said he took a one-year five million dollar deal 
with the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, the reason why we say bet on himself, right, is because he probably could have gotten a longer term deal and not have to prove everything next year. But I guess he thought that if he has a great year next year, he'll be able to get a better long term deal next year in free agency. But Letter, of course, uh, he's going to have his work cut out for him, right? He's coming off this amazing resurgent Vesna nominated season where he went 25, 13, and 5. Uh, he had a 213 goals against average and 930 save percentage. Just like unbelievable numbers. Uh, and first off, let me just say, I love this move for the Blackhawks, right? Like they clearly needed another goalie to help take the load off of Corey Crawford, who has been having a rough time with head injuries and only managed a 908 save percentage in the 39 games he played last season. Clearly, they weren't ready to put all their hopes on like Colin Delia if Crawford gets hurt as they try to once again get back into the playoffs after a rough season. Uh, but as far as the fantasy impact goes, Leonard goes from one of the best defensive teams to maybe one of the worst. So that can't be great for his fantasy value. Of course, on the other hand, I'm expecting Chicago to score more goals next season than the Islanders. So perhaps the worst defensive support can be made up for by more run support uh, also. So, you know, I don't know, depending, maybe you could get more wins from having more goals, but that does still require Robin Leonard to be able to stop pucks. And hey, maybe the Chicago D could be a little better after acquiring Calvin DeHaan and Oli Mata during the offseason. I don't know if that's a big deal. Maybe that'll shore things up a little bit. So, okay, to summarize, I guess the two big questions that I have for you that I want you to tackle are like A, how far do you expect Leonard's save percentage to fall next season now that he goes from the Islanders to the Blackhawks? And B, do you see this as another tandem situation for him? Or is he expected to be the starter with Crawford backing up? Like Corey Crawford, I think is healthy. So they're going to next season with two, um, like, you know, Crawford used to be this like amazing goalie, top five in the league maybe. And Robin Leonard just came off a Vesna nominated season. So I'm curious to know what you think about the situation over in Chicago. Okay, so to answer your question about how far I expect Leonard's save percentage to fall next season... Got to give some context, some of it, some of it, which you already provided, Elon, but I'm going to give uh, quantify it a bit more closely. Uh, Laner definitely has his work cut out for him going to Chicago, which is a tough place to go to bet on yourself, because as you sort of suggested, Chicago was the absolute worst team in the league last season in five on five expected goals against. They were ranked 26th in the league and shot attempts against per 60 minutes. Only Ottawa gave up more shots against, period, than Chicago. And that's not a place you want to find yourself. Now, you look at Laner himself. Uh, he had a great season. He was fifth in the league in five-on-five save percentage. Similarly ranked in goal saved above average. But these, these uh, traits of the team he's going to are going to negatively impact him. And you're onto something a little bit, Elon, that adding Oli Mata and Calvin Dahan uh, and sending out Gustav Forsling and Henry Yogi Haru is probably a step towards improving Chicago's defensive situation, but Leonard is still going to have to work substantially harder to earn his save percentage in Chicago than he had to in uh, Long Island last year, which is not a disservice at all to what he did for the New York Islanders. I'm only saying that it's going to be greater difficulty. It's like if goaltending is NBA jam with rookie veteran all-star and legend difficulty levels, the Islanders would be like the second one. They'd be veteran, but uh, by going to Chicago, Robin Lanier is ratcheting the difficulty all the way up to legend. So, so that's the sort of game he has to play this year. And I believe in Lanier. Remember, he had a 920 save percentage two seasons before last. I, I wouldn't have expected him to even repeat the 930 in Long Island. So I'm hoping for like a slightly above average, league average save percentage in Chicago. He proved last year that he can outperform your average NHL goalie uh, no matter what sort of shots are thrown at him. So I still expect him to, uh, but Chicago has to at least protect him in an average way for him to then beat the average shape percentage. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I guess you're saying that Chicago has to help him to be good, and he has to help Chicago by being good. It's probably yeah. going to be a bit like of a symbiotic relationship. Right, like if he's going to play above what an average NHL goalie would do, the baseline for that is still dependent on how well Chicago protects him, right? So if they protect him and like his expected save, uh, the expected save percentage of an average goalie would be 900, then I'd be like, yeah, give Robin Lehner like a 907, maybe. Ugh. But it, but if Chicago gives him much better protection and it's like around league average and he's able, you know, an average goalie would be able to stop, get 915, at that point, Robin Lehner would be able to get a 920. So last year, Chicago not very good at protecting their goalie. This year, they seem to have taken some positive steps in the right direction, although it's still a pretty thin sort of defensive situation there. Yeah. So I, I don't love it for Robin Lehner. I would just like him to be league average next year is what I'm hoping for. I mean, Brian, to be fair, like you're looking at just last season and seeing bad numbers. Don't forget that before last season, Corey Crawford was putting up 929, 918, 924, 924 save percentage. Like Corey Crawford until last season was putting up great numbers on Chicago. So unless you're saying just the whole defense was overhauled and is now terrible uh, after one season, like, you know, it, it is possible that they'll just get better. And like I said, they have brought in some reinforcements in Dehan and Mata. So, you know, I'm not going to be all doom and gloom. Like I do think that Chicago actually could be a team that people might be sleeping on a bit for next season. Cause if Leonard, is at least close to as good or somewhat as good as he was last year. Maybe their defense isn't as bad as people think it is. I'm not saying it's good. Maybe it's not like as bad. And I think, you know, obviously their offense has a lot of people to be excited about. So I don't know. Like, we'll see. Obviously this is a big question mark. Leonard going there is a big shakeup, uh, but I, I kind of like his chances. And more specifically, I like Chicago for next year to do a lot better. Yeah, so I think you're sort of right to be looking at how well Corey Crawford did, 918, 925, 924. And all those years, Corey Crawford did have to outperform. Like, Corey Crawford, we've we've said on the show for a while, is a really good goalie. Like, he can perform the average NHL goalie. So, yeah, if Leonard can come back and do the same thing, then maybe he can get, like, 918, 920 territory. I'd like to think that Chicago has rebuilt their defense a little, although they did have some pretty significant departures in those couple years that uh, Crawford just had to stand more and more on his head. And I don't think that's fair to ask. Like when a goalie puts up a 929 season, we're not like, oh yeah, no problem. 929 again, the only goalie I think we felt comfortable saying that about. Maybe there are two, uh, Henrik Lundqvist and Carey Price, and that's about it. I don't know if Robin Lehner has quite reached that stratosphere yet. Yeah, and no one's saying he's going to get 929, but you're saying like, oh, but Corey Crawford is really good. Like, we're not, that's not fair. To, like, I mean, they brought in Robin Leonard for a reason because he was nominated right. for the Bessa Trophy because they think he's really good. So obviously he has to pull off his end of the bargain. Maybe he could get like a 918, like a 920 save percentage. All of a sudden, Chicago's a whole different team if they could get that kind of goaltending numbers. Uh, anyway, okay, since we're on Chicago, they also made a few trades during the offseason. They've been busy. They traded uh, Dominic Cahoon for Olimata. Uh, they got injured Calvin DeHaan, so we've already mentioned these guys. They got Andrew Shaw from the Habs for a couple picks. Uh, I guess they're taking a swing, hoping to get Dylan Strom 2.0 when they sent Henry Yokiharu to the Sabres for Alex Nylander. Uh, they also recently traded Artem Anisimov to the Sens for Zach Smith. Uh, so of all these uh, new players that are coming into Chicago next season, is there any of them that's on your radar at all that you expect might have some sort of fantasy impact? Like at the end of last season, just for context, the Hawks were rolling lines of like Kane, Taves, and Kajula, and then Strom with Debrinket and Brendan Perlini. So it seems like the maybe one of those like Kajula or Perlini spots could be taken by someone like, say, an Andrew Shaw, who had a career high 47 points last season for the Habs. And oh, by the way, that was in 63 games. That was a 61 point pace season for Andrew Shaw, an amazing season. And if he could either get 
on the line with like Kane and Taves or on the line with Strowman to break it. That could be really great for Andrew Shaw. Maybe he is the, at least to me, he's the one of all of these guys that I can see potentially being a really good sleeper, especially like in a bangers league. Cause he also helps you with some peripherals. Yeah, he does there. Uh, to me, it's weird that Chicago reacquired Andrew Shaw. He had a, yeah, he had a great portion of his season last year, but unsustainable variance behind it. And I, I feel like Chicago is going to remember pretty quickly why they let Andrew Shaw go in the first place. In fact, I would rather uh, take a look at someone like Dylan Sikora, who we were excited about coming into this last season and maybe thinking that he'll get a fresh chance at making an impact in the top six. I think that's more likely than Andrew Shaw succeeding. Wow, that's like a bold thing to say after Shaw just put up a 61-point pace in Montreal. Like, obviously, he was still capable if he was put in the right situation of doing well. Uh, and I feel like if Drake Kajula was playing with Taves and Kane last season, I don't see why Andrew Shaw can't be at least as good as Kajula. But uh, shots fired at Andrew Shaw. Yeah, call that a hot take, I guess. I guess. So what, what do you think you're going to put down? I'm going to bring Andrew Shaw up in the almanac because you're going to have to pick a number. Are you going to be like 30? Like, how low are you going to go for him? I don't know. I think I'd probably go. Uh, well, let me take a look here. Um, okay, I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on Andrew. Well, Shaw. no, I, I, give me 10 seconds here. I, I just want to see, I remind myself what he was at before last year. Yeah. 20 points in 51 games the season before 29 points in 68 games the year before 34. Like he's been a 30, 35 point guy. So yeah, I'm going to say like maybe 35, 40 points. I think last year he ended up in, in a situation with remember him, Domi and Jerem were just, ripping it up to start the season right and there were unsustainable numbers behind all of it uh, and we pointed out that it wouldn't last but I think Shaw was the one who probably was benefiting the most out of those three at a really high IPP his shooting percentage was sky high highest of his career he actually was getting like better chances so give him credit for that but I'm not sure he's going to get that kind of even strength deployment again I mean like I said I, there's options, right? Like, it's not as if Chicago is exploding with top six talent after Kane, Taves, Strom, and Debrinkit. So I guess I have Brandon Saad. <laughs> he never even gets mentioned in this conversation anymore. I almost mentioned him, but I thought better of it. Yeah. They have Kirby Doc. Maybe he can make the team and get at the top six. Who knows? Okay, so just wanted to throw him out there. Maybe he's a guy you could draft, again, like in a last round or put on your watch list. And if he happens to be on a good line, you could stream him in. I, also, he's not going to play the whole season, right? He's going to get injured. So, you know, you just want to have him while he's healthy and maybe you throw him in your IR when he's injured or whatever. Okay, uh, next, let's go to look at the Western Canada. So Calgary and Edmonton played the Western Conference versions of the Sens and Leafs by taking players that the other team didn't want, namely in Cam Talbot and Mike Smith. They just traded their starting goalies. It's so weird. I've never seen that happen before. Uh, or maybe I have. Let us know uh, on Twitter at Keeping Carlson or in the chat room here if you can think of an, another pair of teams that swapped their goalies at the end of a season. Uh, but And they didn't even trade them, right? It was just both UFAs. Okay, let's start right. with Cam Talbot, who goes to Calgary. He's going to join big save Dave Riddick to battle for starts. Uh, Talbot is coming off a dreadful season. He put up a terrible, like, eight, I, I want to think of more adjectives here, a, a disgusting 893 save percentage with the Oilers. He ended up losing his starting job to Miko Koskinen, uh, probably because Talbot was so bad. That's why the Oilers ended up paying all this money for Miko Koskinen because he actually had a couple good games in a row and they decided, okay, he's worth getting a bit. So it's all, it's all Talbot's fault that the Oilers, Oilers are stuck with Koskinen now. Uh, then Talbot got traded to Philly where he was equally bad in the four games he got there. And this had followed up, by the way, a disappointing 2007-18 season where Talbot had a 908 save percentage. But 
that actually followed uh, four straight seasons of Talbot being a good goalie. Like for the first part of his career as a backup on the Rangers and then as a starter on the Oilers, he was looking pretty good. Like he was looking like a 917 plus save percentage goalie, including that amazing 2016-17 season where he had a 919 save percentage in 73 games played. He played 73 games and was able to maintain such a high save percentage, got the Oilers into the playoffs. So he has shown us that he can be good. Uh, but like what happened to him? Like, clearly he struggled, but would it be fair, Brian, for me to put some of the blames on the Oilers just being a terrible team? Like, I wonder if we could almost... Remember when Devin Dubnik was, like, we thought he was good, and then all of a sudden he went to the Oilers? Or no, I think he was on the Oilers, and then he started doing yeah. badly there, and then he got shipped away, and everyone thought, oh, this guy's not good anymore. But it turned out maybe it was just the Oilers sucked. The Oilers sucked. And then when Dubnik got to Minnesota, it was a great situation for him, and he flourished. Maybe the same could be said for Camp Talbot, especially because I kind of have a hunch that... Uh, Calgary doesn't want David Riddick to be their number one goalie. Like they had the option to make him their number one goalie going to the playoffs last year, but you know, he wasn't the one like Mike Smith who wasn't doing that well. He ended up stealing that number one job and you know, Riddick didn't have a great year. He had a nine 11 save percentage overall. He obviously had some good stretches, but he ended up riding the bench during the flames short playoff run. They did sign Riddick to a two year, $5.5 million contract today. So I'm not sure if that signifies anything one way or another. It's not like a huge money deal. So I wonder if maybe Cam Talbot could end up being a bit of a draft steal next season, because if he could even be average and if he's the starting goalie on Calgary, like don't forget Calgary is one of the top teams in the league. If you could get a goalie that might be the starting goalie on one of the top teams that could end up being like a top 15 value fantasy goalie, right? And he's someone that you're probably going to get a lot later than the 15th goalie drafted. So I definitely have my eye on Cam Talbot of all these goalies that got moved around. Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's a good chance that Talbot could end up being the diamond in the rough here. Well, Elon, I'm really glad you talked so much about what could Ken Talbot do if he wasn't with Edmonton, how much of it was Edmonton's fault and how much of it was Cam Talbot's fault. Uh, there is a measure for that. It's called goal saved above average. Uh, you, can, you can use it as a rate stat, goal saved above average for, per 60 minutes. It's also not the first, it's probably like the ninth time I've mentioned it on this show alone. Right. Um, I, watch, I watch the games, so I don't need to know <laughs> these numbers. Anyway, uh, so Cam Talbot, even accounting for the difficulty of shots that he was facing in Edmonton, still performed below the level. Uh, of an average NHL goalie. But you're right, that hasn't been the story of his whole career. Like, oh, on the whole, um, I see Cam Talbot as an average goalie who played, yeah, a, a fair amount below average last season. Um, but in each of the last four seasons, uh, Cam Talbot, uh, like I'm calling him average, he's had some good years, but none of them have actually been average. And three of them, Cam Talbot has either been a fair deal above or below average, but that's all washed out to a picture that leads me to expect Cam Talbot to be around league average in his save percentage, uh, plus or minus, depending on the protection he's getting from the team in front of him. And this season in Calgary, hopefully, that's a plus. Um, you're onto something, Elon, that at least Calgary takes better care of their goalie than Edmonton does. Calgary was in the top third of the league last year in protecting their net. Edmonton was in the bottom third of the league last year. So yeah, I think Talbot could hold his own and be a great, deep, goalie pick the same way I thought Mike Smith would be last year. So personally, I'm a little more afraid than you seem to be to get back on that ride again, especially with David Riddick being a backup who's capable of inching into a 1B, then 1A, or straight up number one territory if his tandem mate leaves the door open wide enough. Like, I'm not sleeping on David Riddick either. A lot of people really regretted not getting him uh, before their competition did last year. Like, I could see Riddick being at least as valuable as he was last year. He's one of the better goalies um, 
by the metric of goal saved above average per 60 minutes. I imagine what the Flames are going to do is they're going to let one of the two guys, uh, Talbot or Riddick, earn it out of camp in a more or less open competition. They're not terribly committed to either one. Um, Riddick, I think, just signed like yeah, a arbitration deal. You, you mentioned it. Cam Talbot is just signed for this year only. So they don't need to deeply invest in one or the other, right? They can figure out which is their guy and then ride him. Um, but Cam Talbot has a decent chance of being that guy. The only rub is I think Riddick has an equal chance of being the guy. Yeah. I mean, for sure, Calgary isn't going to do any of these games of like playing a goalie just because they're committed to them. Like they need to go for the cup, right? Like this is their window. They're a good team right now. Mark Giordano is not getting any younger. So yeah, they're going to go with whoever earns it. And I think it's uh, you throw the, the coin in the air. Uh, all I know is that David Riddick couldn't handle the job last year. Maybe he will be able to this year. Uh, we've been talking a lot about tandems, right? And I guess we will have to decide what's the better strategy. Do you just like grab a couple goalies from different teams that are in tandems and hope to get lucky? You know, like what if you grab Talbot and Thomas Grice and all of a sudden you have two starters, that's a lot better than having a tandem, but also you could end up with two backups. So it's a tough to decide each way. But uh, Brian, who would you rather have? If you were taking a tandem, would you rather take the Calgary tandem or the Islanders tandem? Because I feel like the Islanders tandem is going to be the one that goes first because Varlamov and Grice are sort of bigger names at this point than Talbot and Riddick. But Calgary is a better team. So I feel like I'd almost rather have the Calgary tandem unless you just think the goalies are too crappy. Uh, I will also take the Calgary tandem too. I, I think... Probably Grice is the best goalie of the bunch, but I like what Calgary is going to be able to offer their goalie a little more than what the Islanders are going to be able to offer theirs. Yeah, maybe it's a decision of do you want to have more wins or do you want to have a better save percentage? Because I would think that probably, well, if last season was any indication, then the Islanders goalies would have a better save percentage. But of course, Varlamov might not be as good as Robin Leonard, as we've discussed. Okay, over to the Oilers. Uh, So now they've got a tandem themselves of Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen. I feel like both of these guys are pretty similar to me. They've both shown themselves to be capable of being good for stretches, but neither gives me much confidence that they can be consistently good for a long stretch, especially not for a full season, and especially on the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Koskinen ended last season with a 906 save percentage in 55 games. Smith had an 898 save percentage in 42 games, but to Mike Smith's credit, he was higher than 910 save percentage in the second half. Like I said, he stole the job from Riddick. He was actually really great in the playoffs. Calgary had no reason to blame Mike Smith for losing. It was because of other reasons. They couldn't score enough goals. Uh, I see this as maybe the tandemist tandem in the league. Like, I really just don't see any scenario where either of these guys becomes a starting goalie and plays like a ton of games. I think Edmonton's going to have to just jump back and forth between the two of them. Uh, All I know is I don't really want to draft either of these guys. I'm like totally not into the Oilers at all for next season. You look at their players that they have aside from their big three, obviously, McDavid, uh, RNH, and Dreisaitl. It's like, Ugh, like not great. So yeah, uh, I would say wait, this is my least favorite tandem, I think maybe in the league, or maybe we could like consider Ottawa in that conversation. But yeah, maybe are you higher by any chance on Mike Smith or Koskinen being worth uh, drafting next season? No, I'm not. Like, it's funny. You've got the Calgary tandem. And it's like, oh, yeah, both these ta- guys could potentially be number one. And in Edmonton, it's like, oh, neither of these guys could probably be a number one. It was very Oilers to create a goalie problem by signing Koskinen and then try to solve it by acquiring another goalie problem in Mike Smith, which is actually good news for Miko Koskinen. Mike Smith is probably one of the handful of possible goalie acquisitions that Koskinen could actually outplay. So, yeah, I agree with you it's going to be very tandemy in Edmonton except I don't trust either one um definitely not as much as I trust either of the guys in Calgary like I honestly feel like we have a very remember Andre Pavlik 
Of course, on the yeah. Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, I feel like Edmonton essentially has two Andre Pavliks. These are two <laughs> guys who will fool you for a couple weeks into thinking, oh man, still got it. And then they will crash and burn the rest of the way. So I would stay pretty far away from the Edmonton tandems. Right. Remember, wasn't there a season when at the start you like had read some article and you were convinced that actually Pavlik is good? Like, and yeah, it was like, right yeah. before he retired. <laughs> so we never got to find out. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think that that was in the early days of goal saved above average. And, and former Keeping Carlson guest Nick Mercadante, I think, was one of the people who was touting this theory as well, that Pavlik was better than we all thought, that he just uh, had a rough go of it in the teams he was playing behind. Yeah, I guess I'd love to get Dick Mercadante back. He was a good guess. He knows a lot about goalies. Uh, okay, since we're on the Oilers and Flames, I guess let's take a second to talk about their huge blockbuster trade where they swapped Milan Lucic and James Neal. And so first of all, my initial thought is that Lucic will play in the bottom six in Calgary and will continue to have zero fantasy value. So I don't know if there's anything to say about Milan Lucic. Uh, but James Neal, on the other hand, he interests me because, yeah, he was a huge disappointment last season. He only had 19 points in 63 games. But before that, he was around a 50-point guy with Vegas and Nashville before that for a few seasons. And maybe he still has some of that left. Plus, and I think this is the, the one big plus, the Oilers are just so, so shallow. Like I said, after McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Like, to get a line one, power play one spot and play with, like, McDavid and Dreisaitl, or at least, like, on line two with Ryan Nugent Hopkins, all James Neal has to do is beat out the likes of, like, Alex Chiasson, Colby Cave, Marcus Granlin, Jujhar Kyra, Joaquin Nigard, Zach Cassian, Josh Archibald, Sam Gagne, like... These are like, I know it sounds like I'm just naming a bunch of fourth liners, but this it sounds is, like, like you're making up names. <laughs> but, like, I just feel like James Neal is better than all these guys, right? So maybe the Oilers end up slotting Neal in on line one with McDavid and Dreisaitl and also on power play one. And so if like a guy who has shown that he could be like a 50 point guy just a couple seasons ago, if he's with those guys, I don't know, like, I'm not saying it'll last all season. And I'm not saying that I would like bet a lot of money on it, but. James Neal is someone I'd be very happy to draft late in drafts. Like last year, people were going too insane about Ty Ratty, right? Like we saw that Ty Ratty was going to be playing with McDavid and then people were taking him like super high. Uh, I don't think that'll happen. I think people have learned their lesson. But James Neal, if he's available to me at the end of a draft, I'll take him for sure, just for the shot. And obviously we'll see in training camp what the Oilers actually do with all their guys. I guess they also have Pooley Arvey, maybe, <laughs> and Yamamoto. Uh, so like there is some competition, but like it could be a good spot for James Neal. Uh, maybe the best spot he's seen since his Pittsburgh days. And so, yeah, for that reason, I, I I think he's worth throwing a late pick. What do you think? So I it's not that I don't agree with you. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say that we had this conversation last year, except in place of James Neal, we were saying Ty Ratty, and he had a similarly uncompetitive group of forwards to beat, and he didn't, right? He lost his spot pretty quickly after not doing much with it. And I'm actually... To be like, fair, I'm, I think he got injured, right? Like, I think maybe things could have been a little different for him if he could have stayed healthy. But yeah, the lessons learned. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, James Neal is not so interesting to me above someone like Ty Ratty. He's actually less interesting than me because Ty Ratty had this, like, unknown upside quality to him. James Neal feels like we know where he's going. He's definitely a player in decline. There's no doubt about that. Um, but to be fair to Neal, like Milan Lucic, uh, he got even worse than he deserved last year. So it was a bad year, but his numbers were even worse than they should have been, even given how bad he played. Um, but remember, even in what was considered for James Neal, a successful season in Vegas the year before last, in that season, when he scored 25 goals, he still only paced for 51 points. And now he's two years older. 
than he was then. So I do see your optimism and James Neal, all that said, maybe he plays with McDavid. That could work. Maybe he plays 17 minutes a game again instead of just 15. And that would be uh, a reason to take a chance on James Neal. I'm not going to write him off entirely, but you are like starting to get wistful about Neal's days in Pittsburgh. But let's remember that those were exactly his prime years, age 23 to 26. And then he became a 50 point guy almost the instant that he went to Nashville. So James Neal is not a bet I'd, I'd want to make. Uh, in a deep league, sure. Like if, if you're at that point in the draft where you're taking flyers, sure, why not? And then, you know, it's non-committal. You're not passing up anyone else you're more interested in. Uh, the same way that you might want to try drafting Zach Cassian at the end of your draft, or Alex Chieson, or maybe even Jesse Pugliarvi. Uh, but for me, uh, I think I'd actually rather Cassian than hmm. uh, James Neal. Would you, or, or are you taking Neal? And then I want to ask you a follow-up. Okay, I guess the thing is Cassian has those peripherals. Obviously, we'll learn a lot in training camp. I don't like drafting too early because I like to see these things. I think I'd take a shot on Neil just because Neil has shown us some offensive upside as recently as two seasons ago. So I'd take him. But yeah, definitely I agree with you. Like, I'm not drafting Neil in a way where I'm like, this guy might be on my lineup all season and like a core guy. This is like a guy, it's basically like I'm streaming right at the draft and then I'm ready to cut bait as soon as he's off that top line, which might be right away, but... The upside is there. That's all I'm saying. But yeah. So, okay. What's your follow-up? Well, knowing this is probably true about James Neal and this other play I'm going to throw at you, uh, who would you draft uh, between James Neal and Corey Perry? Uh, Neal. Yeah. Really? Okay. I, I would take Perry for sure. Ugh, you love... Okay. First of all, Corey Perry has no chance of getting on the top power play. You're right. There's, there's no upside there. Maybe, maybe that's dumb. I would take... Like, you know, I'm going for the higher floor, I guess. Boring. But as your last pick in a draft, you're going for high floor? Why? You'll just drop the player if they suck. Yeah. If, if, if he's on top line, top power play, it's like it's huge. That's not going to happen for Corey Perry. I already see the error in my ways. All I right. thought it was really easy, actually, to choose Corey Perry, but now I'm now I'm having second thoughts. Honestly, like, I feel like Corey Perry's done. Like, I, I get your optimism. He's violently. the Jason Spezza of 1920, right? He's a Dallas star. And I'm like, oh, yeah, finally. Like, a, a couple <laughs> contextual factors have changed for the better for him now now he's going to be okay and uh it won't happen yeah so I mean, I, i'm totally open to that possibility I, I i believe that he's going to be okay but probably not need someone you need to take a, a flyer on like yeah. he'll be available in a couple weeks even if he does half decent in you know the, his first handful of games in dallas whereas james neal if he plays with mcdavid and has points in his first three games he's gone oh yeah for sure you grab him so okay we're on the same page uh, you you you're a guy. You love your like older players who might still have something left. Jason, are you into Jason Spezza on no. the by any chance? No, okay. no. I think it's beautiful that he's uh, that he's landing in Toronto to potentially finish his career. I think it's a good fit for player and team. But yeah. no, I'm not expecting much. It's like Tyler Ennis last year, right? Yeah, now Tyler Ennis is on the Sens. So <laughs> it's kind of funny how this all works out. The Leafs, I think, I like what the Leafs do, though. They sort of spend all their money on their top players. And then they've got like these cheap guys. I mean, Jason Spence uh, as a fourth line center. That's pretty good. I don't, I don't mind that. I'll take it. All right. So let's uh, go to Buffalo. He would next. be like, how much better is he than Ottawa's first line center? <laughs> so who's Ottawa's first line center? <laughs> anyway? like, Artem Anisimov, Colin White. Like, G- yeah. uh, JS, not JS, you care. Pajot, Tierney, it's a mess. It's a oh, disaster. Yeah. yeah, maybe Spezza could crack the top line in Ottawa. <laughs> so oh, it's not a fourth, doubt about it. And he'd be fourth line in Toronto. That's sad. Okay. I would definitely want to stop in Buffalo. I think they've had a low key, fantastic off season. And especially if you include like sort of the end of last season, which was basically an off season for them since they had nothing to play for when they got Brandon Montour. Uh, like I love what they've done for this team. So obviously their biggest splash came when they extended Jeff Skinner. 
And uh, we've already talked about that a couple episodes ago. Uh, but check out what else Buffalo pulled off. They acquired Colin Miller from Vegas for picks. They got Jimmy VC from the Rangers for a third. Uh, they signed Marcus Johansson as a UFA to a two-year contract. They made that trade of sending away Alex Nylander for Henry Yokiharu, who's supposed to be a high upside defenseman uh, prospect. Uh, and then, yeah, if you include that trade with Anaheim for Brandon Montour at the end of the season, the Sabres have like totally overhauled, especially their defense, right? All of a sudden, we're looking at like Darlene, Ristolainen for as long as he's there, Montour, Miller, Yoki Haru, and then they still have Zach Bogosian. Like, this is not a bad-looking decor for a team that I feel like going into last season, we're like, this team is terrible. Like, their defense is terrible. They have no good players, aside from Darlene and Ristolainen. Now, all of a sudden, it looks like they have, like, a decent-looking decor. And I'm curious to know, like, would you draft anyone from that group? Like, obviously, you're drafting Darlene or Ristolainen, and I'm looking forward to drooling all over Rasmus Darlene when we do our almanac, and also to discussing Ristolainen and what he still has left for us. Uh, but like, what do you think about like a Brandon Montour? Can he still hit that upside that we were expecting back in Anaheim? Can Colin Miller repeat his 41-point pace from a couple seasons ago? Like, are there any of these defensemen on Buffalo aside from the Rasmussai that you're interested in looking at for drafting next season? First off, I think it's Rasmai. Uh, <laughs> and then to answer your question about the defensemen, no, I'm not getting any more into them. You're right that Buffalo has had a low-key good offseason rebuilding a decor that needed it. And on the cheap, too, but when you're looking at these guys switching teams, uh, the thinking would be that someone like Brandon Montour would get a bump in deployment in Buffalo. They need him more, but he actually lost about a minute of ice per game in the 20 games he played for Buffalo towards the end of the season. So I feel like it might be a similar deal for Colin Miller, right? Unless he ends up on the top pair, can get minutes above and beyond the 19 and a half he averaged in Vegas the last couple of years. I can't expect Colin Miller to break through in any new way. And even repeating 41 points would be difficult because uh, that season where he got 41 points, he had 17 power play points to help get him there. And I just can't see a scenario where he's likely to collect those power play points in Buffalo unless Darlene gets hurt and uh, Miller is the guy who gets promoted to the top unit. Yeah, okay. I guess it's all fair. I actually kind of like Brandon Montour a little bit. He did have, like you said, his minutes went down when he got to Buffalo, but he did have, I think, 10 points in 20 games. It's like a 41-point pace. Like, I feel like he could maybe be like a 40-point defenseman if things break right for him. I'm not expecting like a lot of power play time, but he could get a lot of even strength time. Uh, so Brandon Montour might be a guy I would take late because defensemen, you know, are so hard to get. We've been doing our slow drafts, and Brandon Montour has been slowly trickling to the top of the available players when you're ranking by last season just because so many defensemen get taken like in the couple we do 14 team leagues and each team has like four goal uh four d spots plus you might want to use one of your bench spots on a uh, on a defense am i saying goalie or defense i don't know what i'm doing it's like brian but you know what i'm saying a lot of defensemen get drafted and all of a sudden someone who might be able to get you 40 points could be pretty interesting and uh i guess we could discuss in the future maybe i could try to convince you that brandon mantra might be a little better than what you're saying like just rem- like i just still remember when everyone thought he was going to be so so good is that like totally over now like people were falling o- all over themselves to trade for montour or to draft him a couple seasons ago that everyone thought he was the heir apparent to take over on the top power play in Anaheim. Yeah, and that upside is still there, except Buffalo is closed, right? You've got Darlene, and if you want Montour to have a meaningful impact, you want him to get up on that top pairing. He's not going to get power play time, so maybe he does get up on that top pairing and plays enough minutes to become a little more fantasy relevant, 
but it's the Darlene show from now until the end of Montour's career if he's in Buffalo for the entirety of it. Yeah, well, I'm definitely not talking about like 50 point Brandon Montour, but I feel like he could be 40 point Montour, not on the top power play. Like on the second power play, give him eight to 10 power play points and then, a you know, 20 plus minutes of even strength time. There's something there maybe. But OK, let's talk about Marcus Johansson, who comes into the picture. I can definitely see a scenario where he I'm assuming they're bringing him in to be the second line right winger uh, alongside Casey Middlestad as the center and then say like Connor Sherry or Jimmy VC or maybe even like Acapulco. So I don't know, like they, they have other guys, but I feel like they brought Marcus Johansson in to try him on the second line. Maybe in Victor Olofsson is someone who's showed us glimpses of a potential future. So maybe he could crack the top six, but I do think Johansson will be there. And I guess my question now is, is that worth anything to you? Like last year, we joked around at some points in the season, how Johansson was such an obvious on New Jersey, like an obvious, like 45 ish point guy. Like you project it, you know, he's going to hit it. Cause he's, he's not great. He's not terrible. Is it kind of similar in Buffalo? Because like another thing I guess is there kind of is an open spot on that top power play, right? Like for sure, there's going to be Skinner, Eichel, and Reinhardt, and Dahlin. Then there's going to be a fourth forward. And who is it going to be? Like Ocposo, Middlestat, Olafson? Like it, it, I think it very well could be Marcus Johansson. And, and if that happens, then all of a sudden maybe he's not just a 45-point guy. Maybe he's closer to a 55-point guy. Uh, he did hit 58 points in 2016-17 with Washington, and he's paced for around like 40 in the last couple of seasons in New Jersey and Boston, but he's struggled so much with injuries. So I don't even know how much that's worth. So yeah, where, where do you think we're going to end up projecting Marcus Johansson next season going to the Buffalo Sabres? It's optimistic that Marcus Johansson is going to end up on the top power play. Washington used him there, right? A few years over someone like Andre Burakovsky, where we, we were always trying to figure out who the fourth forward was going to be there. But then when Johansson went to New Jersey, uh, he wasn't used on the top power play. Boston did every so often after acquiring him at the deadline. And there's certainly room for Johansson to be on the top power play in Buffalo. But even with that, I don't think he gets past being optimist like super optimistically a 55 point guy marcus johansson is only paced above 50 points three times in his career uh, the first time was a season where he only played 34 games so i don't know if he would have been able to maintain that pace had he played another 50 uh, another time was a season where he scored on 20 percent of his shots and the third time was when johansson had a 51 point season that did look about right so i think that's probably the best case scenario 51 points uh for marcus johansson even with top power play time especially when on the second line in buffalo at even strength there's not a whole lot to work with right so um i'd still have him probably at 45 points but if he does get on that top power play unit i'd be happy to give him 50 yeah i mean cam robinson says that we shouldn't give up on casey middlestat just yet so maybe there is still a good centerman on that second line that we're just waiting to break out but yeah probably i'll end up going around 50 maybe you know uh break the shackles and go to 53 points or something we're, we're in the almanac this year we're not doing the rounding we've decided so we're going to be able to give you guys exact projections and so maybe i could see myself inching up to 52 53 for marcus johansson if i want to really play on the wild side here uh Finally, if I'm right that Buffalo all of a sudden has decent D-depth to go along with their high-end top-line scores, do you think there's a chance that this will finally be the year that you want to own a Buffalo goalie? And if so, which one? <laughs> That's the problem. It's like, finally, Buffalo looks like they'll have good defense. Maybe you'll want their starting goalie. But unfortunately, we have no idea who that's going to be. Carter Hutton was signed at the start of last season. Uh, he started strong, actually, but he was brutal at the end of the year. He had a sub-900 save percentage in the second half, which opened the d- door for Linus Allmark to come in and maybe take over. But he totally failed to capitalize on Hutton's struggles at the end. Like He was just as terrible in the second half of the season. So neither Hutton or Allmark strike me as guys that I want to depend on as a fantasy goalie. But at the same time, I think Buffalo 
kind of like Chicago. Like I think they're going to be a better team than maybe people expect. And, you know, I'd love what I'd love is to say that this is the season that Omark will take over and he could be a steal in drafts. Al, like what I was saying about Cam Talbot before, uh, especially because I just have no faith in Carter Hutton. Like he's never been a starter in the league. Like there was that one season where St. Louis played him for a bit and all of a sudden people thought of him as maybe a potential starter. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm much more afraid to say that Linus Allmark is going to be a draft steal than I was like about Cam Talbot. So I don't know, Brian, maybe you could say it for me. Can you say that Linus Allmark is going to be a draft steal so I don't have to? I don't know that I'll say he's a steal, but I will say that he's got a good shot at supplanting Hutton. If Hutton goes bad, like last year, Linus Allmark was better at five on five on the whole. Uh, like he was just about average in terms of how we'd compare uh, against the average NHL goaltender. Like he performed about at that level, whereas Hutton was below that level, uh, was actually below uh, Georgiev, Jake Allen, and Malcolm Subban in goals saved above average per 60 minutes. So, uh, so yeah, I'm happy to say that Linus Allmark should be the Buffalo starter, although I said that all of last year, too. Uh, you want me to say that he'll be a draft day steal? I feel like he might be like a third week of free agency steal. I don't know that you need to go out and get him on draft day in most formats, but at some point, you're going to be able to add him to your team and he's going to reward you handsomely. I'm in. Okay, but you're not going to... I don't know. It's so weird, right? Is no Buffalo goalie going to get drafted? Because you're saying like you won't have to draft Ulmar because he won't get drafted. But like, are you saying all, uh, like Carter Hutton will get drafted? Like who's drafting Carter Hutton? I don't know. I guess we'll learn a lot in training camp or probably not actually, but uh, it'll be interesting. That's a tandem I would want. But actually, no, in this case, I wouldn't even want the tandem because I just don't really have faith in Carter Hutton. So I'd rather just take Ulmark and then, you know, be ready to drop him, obviously, if it doesn't work out. But I think he could end up being good. Uh, who would you rather have between Ulmark and Cam Talbot for next season? Oh, uh, Cam Talbot. Yeah, I guess he's on a better team, probably. It, like, I mean, it feels like last year, the I mean, Allmark didn't give Buffalo a whole lot of reasons to use him instead of Hutton, but there was probably opportunity for them to try him a little bit more. Um, but they were really excited when they signed Carter Hutton. Although I need to, I'm trying to remember, have they changed GM since then? I do think that this is a part of it. I know you think that it's a, you know, these are all, uh, professional organizations, like multi-million dollar, uh, outfits that you know don't just play players based on their contracts but i actually saw something um i think it was by uh namita and stats on twitter who uh drew a line like a that showed the correlation between a defenseman's salary and their time on ice and like i know there's like a, a causation argument to be made within that but it was very interesting like i am a believer that uh, organizations do let player contracts dictate some of their deployment decisions. I mean, the thing is, it's like such a broad general thing to say. And like each situation is different. And I wouldn't want to just paint all organizations with that brush. Like, I feel like there's a difference between a team that say is like a sure thing to make the playoffs. And so maybe they're going to want to stick with their guys that they like bet on. As opposed to, I feel like the Buffalo Sabres, like they are going to need to win every game. They, like, they're going to be fighting to make the playoffs next year if they're lucky. Right. So I don't think they could like and I think that's good for them financially. I don't think they need to justify signing Carter Hutton in exchange for not making the playoffs if they have a chance. I think they're going to go with their best goalie. But I think there are probably other situations, like you said, where they maybe have better reason to just go with the guy that they're spending the big money on. And Carter Hutton, by the way, it's not as if he's making like so much money. Right? He he signed for like two point. I thought he signed this like big contract. He's getting like two point seven five million a year. And he has two years left on the contract. So I don't think they even need to be too tied up with him. Like, I think the plan yeah. was for him to sort of be a bridge before Linus Allmark takes over. Now it's just time for Linus Allmark to do it. So let's go, Allmark. Be good. Uh, 
And with that, Brian, I think we're done like the main signings. I've got a lightning round plan for us where we can go over all the remaining guys that might maybe have fantasy impacts that were either signed or traded in the offseason. But before we get to that, how about I drop our big announcement? Are you ready for it? Uh, yeah. 95 minutes into the show is a really great time for a big announcement. Let's do it. I mean, when you say it, I, you're being sarcastic, right? But like, do you think that there's people who listen to Keeping Carlson and stop partway through? Like, I feel like, what's the point? Like, we're No, talking- <laughs> I, do, I don't think that's the case. But I also feel like there's... There's a drama, you know, like everyone's, I feel like we, we, we're ready for a lightning round. We're ready to wind things up, wind things down, but we're about to wind everyone up. If anything, I would say you want your big announcement to come at the end because people are still going to want to finish listening to the podcast and then act on the announcement. So now they like, it'll be sooner to the time that it's over that they can act on the announcement rather than having to wait an hour and a half. Send us your feedback at Keeping Carlson. Would an announcement, a big announcement fit better, you know, within the first 30 to 60 minutes or in the 95th minute? Okay. I know what our advertisers think. Well, yeah, adver- but they're dumb. I think they're wrong. Like, I think uh, at the end of the podcast, it's just as good. As the I'm start. not Maybe- saying they're right. I'm saying, you know what? We know what they think. Yeah, well, I don't think advertisers know that much. Otherwise, we'd have more of them because uh, obviously they don't know enough to know that advertising for keeping Carlson is a smart idea. Okay, big announcement time. Here it is. We are opening up Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League signups today. It is time. Cupful season is upon us, and I'm super excited for the next season of our Patron Fantasy League. This is a league we've been doing, Brian, I think now for five seasons, if I'm right, or four seasons. Are we going to season five now? This is season five of the best fantasy league in the world. And uh. it's like only grown into like a super fun and competitive. Like it, it's grown into exactly what we hoped, right? Years like we built, we built. And I think it's built. Yeah, I love the couple. It's the league. It's it's for no money. And it's the league that I care about the most year in, year out. Because I'm competing against the smartest fantasy players in the world. The patrons of Keeping Carlson fighting for that like fantasy like godlike status you know like to be because you have to climb your way up from you start at the bottom at the bottom tier and you slowly scratch and claw your way to the tier one only 14 people get to tier one and last season dave benton i'm sure he's happy that i said godlike status before dave benton won the tier one ultimate champion which is like i feel like makes him one of the top fantasy players in the whole world right like that's a really hard achievement you have to like win season after season to get there and then to win against all these great winners where was this adulation when i won the year before i did I complimented you a lot. It was amazing. And this year, by the way, I'm going to be in tier one. So I'm excited to take my shot. But if you're listening to this, you could be in the cupful because it's open to anyone. Anyone can join if you're a patron of Keeping Carlson. So basically, you go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. You sign up to be a patron. You could even do it for a dollar uh, for now up until the end of August. But to play in the cupful next season, you need to be a $5 patron. But then you'll get in and we, you know, you fill up the sign up form. We'll send you an invite on Yahoo and we'll be off to the races. Uh, we're actually going to do our next podcast we're going to be talking all about how to design a fantasy league in the context of the rules for the cupful we're actually going to be doing a rule change bracket where a bunch of people have been submitting their suggestions of potential rule changes so you could check out actually our current cupful rules uh there's a lot of links i'm throwing at people keeping carlson.com slash cupful to see the the rules but yeah uh it's a fun league it's yahoo it's head-to-head there's playoffs it's all the good stuff and we'd love for you to get in on it uh this season and start your climb to fantasy glory so just go to keeping carlson.com slash patron Sign up to be a patron, and then you'll see in our posts or on our Facebook group 
how to sign up to play in the couples. So I'm super excited. And uh, yeah, we'll obviously be mentioning it as we go. But Brian, how about now we go to the lightning round, all the remaining players that I think might be fantasy relevant, and then we'll end the show. What do you say? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Lightning round time. And I believe we will talk about one Tampa Bay Lightning player in the lightning round. So that'll be perfect. But first, let's start in New Jersey. Uh, anything here. Wayne Simmons signed with the Devils. Any chance he can crack the top six or get on the power play one and be relevant again. Like this guy like used to be really great in fantasy, right? When he was on Philly, he was generally on the second line or the top line on that top power play. And he was also great for your hits. If you're in a bangers league, he was a top guy. He fell off like so bad over the last couple of seasons. Two seasons ago, we said, ah, don't worry about it. He was just injured all the time. He's fine. The last season was like, oh, maybe he actually just isn't good anymore. But now he goes to the Devils. And all he really has to do is beat out someone like uh, Jesper Bratt or Coleman or I guess Jack Hughes. Like it might be tough to get on that top power play, but maybe he could do it. He's good. He sits in the front of the net. He pushes people around. He gets like tippins. Uh, is there a chance that Wayne Simmons is someone worth drafting in fantasy next year? Like compare him to say Corey Perry and James Neal. He's probably about in the same class. We excused Simmons as awful 2017-18 season due to his injuries uh, and we can try to excuse an even worse 2018-19 season due to him not being loved by his team anymore right he fell out of his role they signed James Van Reems like who essentially started doing all the things that Wayne Simmons once did except for throw hits um, but Simmons was playing with guys like uh, still a, a developing Nolan Patrick Scott Lawton Jordan Wheel um, who are all decent players but not ones with which Simmons, I guess, could succeed. I would very much like for Simmons to establish himself in the top six in New Jersey. The funny bit is that he has Blake Coleman to contend with, who seems somewhat similarly styled in terms of point scoring upside and throwing hits. But Coleman probably does it better than Simmons, or at least based on his his performance last year, he does. So yeah, Simmons has a shot at the top six. And maybe New Jersey wants to try using him down low on the top power play unit where he had a lot of success in Philadelphia. But after what he's done the last couple of years, Simmons is going to have to show me something first. If I'm going to take a chance on him in any leagues that aren't, you know, so deep, I was actually going to ask you after sharing my spiel on him, who would you prefer between Wayne Simmons and James Neal? Uh, definitely James. Neal. I'm, I'm for these guys that are like throwaway picks late. Give me James Neal because he might play with McDavid, but uh, Wayne Simmons is, he's kind of on my radar. Like not really. I probably at this point in their careers, Blake Coleman might be the better option, but Wayne Simmons, he is only 30. Like hopefully, you know, we thought maybe he'd recover from all his injuries last summer. Maybe it took a little longer. Maybe he's like now like fully healed. Maybe we're going to start seeing articles about Wayne Simmons being in the best shape of his life. And he's going to really, you know, turn things on, on the devils. Like, I don't think he's nobody. He, he, he was too good before to just completely disappear like he has. So we'll see. Uh, how about next? Let's go to Tampa. Curtis McElhenney uh, signed as the backup. I feel like there's a good chance that he will be the guy that garners the most fab blown when like there's a, a Andre Vasilevsky injury, you know how sometimes there's like an injury mid game and we don't know in time before free agency time in uh, overnight, you know, like what the extent of the injury is. Some people like get excited, like, Oh man, I got to grab McElhenney before someone else does. Like, I feel like that's the kind of thing that could happen next year. Vasilevsky, it happens to him every once in a while. He gets hurt. Uh, so yeah, McElhenney, obviously not going to do what he did last season. Cause he's not going to get as many starts, but at the same time, he showed us he's pretty good. And he might be maybe one of the better backups to own next season. And I even wonder, Brian, let me throw this at you. 
Maybe Tampa's learned something from like how far Boston went. Hey, how far Carolina went with Curtis McElhenney. Maybe you don't want to ride your number one goalie too much. And maybe the reason why they signed McElhenney over just like going with Demang again, who was fine uh, last year, but they decided, yeah, we want to step it up a little bit and have a goalie that maybe we could give more time to, to let Vasilevsky rest. So he'll be ready for the playoffs and not get swept in the first round. So maybe uh, McElhenney is like a really good backup to drafting leagues. That would be a good idea, maybe considering how badly Vasilevsky played in the playoffs, that maybe he needs to rest a little more, except he only played 53 games in 2018-19, and that was because he was injured for a bunch of it. So maybe those 53 games plus the injury was kind of work to recover and rehab from, or like it didn't like he didn't fully heal up. I'm not sure what the deal was. And if there really can be a line drawn between uh, his rest during the regular season and his play in the postseason, of course, anything can happen in a four game sample. Unfortunately, the worst possible thing happened for Vasilevsky in the four game playoff sample that he had. Uh, In any case, I would think that maybe they do want to try and rest Vasilevsky a little bit during the regular season. Maybe that does mean he plays only 55 games. And if that's the case, then McElhaney definitely is the benefactor. Um, You know, we were saying he's okay for an NHL backup. He's not a guy you want to have in your crease for unknown periods of time, but he's sort of shifted into being a a reliable backup over the last couple of years. So I'm, I think it's a good landing spot for him and he's a great spot start anytime he gets in the net and really deep leads where you do carry backups. Uh, it's not like Toronto where it's a, uh, I mean, they just got rid of Garrett Sparks, but last year it was not even go get Garrett Sparks because he was going to blow up anytime he started for Toronto and holding him wasn't worth it. But someone like McElhaney could get 25 starts, play pretty well on a very good Tampa team could be worth holding in deeper formats. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like, yeah, last season with the Leafs, not only did Garrett Sparks suck when he played, but also he didn't play very much. The Leafs really rode uh, Anderson as much as they could. And yeah, I don't know if you could really... The, the injury thing is interesting, right? Right, Brian, you're saying almost like him being injured was like his rest time, but I don't know if it works that way in terms of just the total number of games. I feel like it's just when he was healthy, he was playing a lot. So maybe that's like more of the way, but I don't know. Either way, also, I'm not even necessarily saying that Tampa's going to learn a lesson from what happened with them. Maybe they're just going to learn a lesson from what happened with other teams being successful and try to like model their strategy off of what other teams were doing which was resting their starting goalies more so we'll have to see bad news for louis demang but i guess goes back to the minors after having a pretty okay season as a backup i thought it was decent but i mean that's the only reason i could think of for why did they get McElhenney when they had demang it must be because they want to maybe play their backup more and still have a better chance to win those games uh okay next uh so james reimer went to carolina I don't know. Is he a threat to Petr Mrazek? Like Mrazek thrived in a tandem situation last year. I don't know if Carolina wants to all of a sudden be like, yeah, Mrazek, he was terrible forever. He came to us. We put him in a situation where he could succeed by not riding him too much. Now let's play him in 60 plus games. Like Maybe they want to have a tandem again. And James Reimer, I guess, is the guy who would do that with him. So I don't know. Is there anything to James Reimer next year? Or is it the kind of thing where like at this point, for sure, don't draft him. And then I guess we'll like reassess if something changes. I don't think you need to draft James Reimer, but he wouldn't be a bad lottery ticket to grab late in a draft where goalies are scarce. Uh, Both Reimer and Mrazek are probably, you know, above average goalies over the course of the last four or five years. Of course, for Reimer, it was a lot easier to believe that than it it is now that he laid a total egg uh, last season. But coming into last season, he had three or four good years. So, uh, like... This is telling a story about James Reimer that's pretty similar to the story about Petr Mrazek, where we have faith in these guys having this high upside that they just have not consistently been able to hold themselves to. So that could mean that the pendulum swings back and forth a lot. Of course, Reimer has some injury history that he needs to be concerned about. I would still imagine that Mrazek starts as number one, 
Reimer is number two with the possibility of that to shift into a 1A, 1B situation. Yeah, I just feel like this is another thing where I think people are almost like assuming that now Morazic is the for sure starter because McElhenney's out. But I I wouldn't be surprised if they went with something similar to last season just because it worked for them, right? But obviously, Reimer has to hold up his end of the bargain and be a decent goalie. Uh, Carolina actually wasn't done. They uh, signed Ryan Dezingle and I think they traded for Eric Howla. So that's two new players coming to the Hurricanes. Uh, Dezingle had 56 points last season. So it was like a career year for him, but he was also invisible and even healthy scratched once he got to Columbus from Ottawa. So like he was great on Ottawa, did nothing on Columbus. Now he goes to Carolina and I'm definitely interested to hear what you think about Ryan Dezingle on the Hurricanes. And then Eric Howla, uh, he actually had a really good year a couple seasons ago in his first season with Vegas. He had 55 points in 76 games. He was centering the second line. Uh, then he was injured most of last season. So we didn't get to see if he would be able to repeat that. Uh, do you think either of these guys, Dezingle or Howla can crack like the top six and have some sort of a fantasy impact? Yeah, for these guys, it's all about deployment, right? Uh, but we have to also remember uh, Nichas is coming up and he's probably going to make the team out of camp. At least I'm assuming he is. And so he's going to take up a spot in the top six, which probably he's a centerman. So that probably takes a spot away from Eric Haola, who's probably, you know, turns into the third line winger or fourth line centerman. Like he's good depth for Carolina. They have lots of weapons. Only God knows how they're going to try and use them and shuffle them through the year though. But now you've got Haola and Dezingle, you know, they're now on a team that's kind of like San Jose last year, Vegas the year before, when on any given night, you could stream in the LeBancs and the Donskoys and the Howlas of the world to see if they'll help you out. Um, Ryan Dezingle, I still believe, has, you know, 20, 25 goals in him, so long as he's given the right role, which he was not given in Columbus. So that, that's what happened there. In Ottawa, he was in a starring role. Columbus, that role was not the same. So we'll see how Carolina wants to use him. Um you know, I'm not, he's actually someone I grabbed late in one of our Almanac pre-order slow drafts. And I'm sort of regretting it because it seems far from a guarantee. He's going to have meaningful top six deployment, except I could see Carolina running a top nine and having a place where he can still put up 45 points, even in the worst case. Nah, I'm I'm going to throw down like a 35 probably for Dezingle in the Almanac. I think I'm not high on him at all. Neither uh, am I high on Eric Howla. I think you kind of nailed it. And yeah, Nichas, who by the way, I'm pretty sure we're, we're pronouncing correctly. It's spelled N-E-C-A-S, but I think we looked this up before we were talking about him last summer and it is Martin Nichas. And yeah, I know Cam Robinson over on the Prospect Central podcast, which I really like, by the way, check that out. Uh, he was saying how he loves the idea of seeing Nichas with Svechnikov next season and he's excited about that. Yeah, Carolina, all of a sudden, super deep team, right? They've got Aho, Nino Niederreiter. Uh, maybe they even still re-sign Justin Williams. That maybe so that could be the top line like they did at the end of last season. Then you've got like let's say Svechnikov, Tara Vinen, and like a Nietzsche. So there's also still Jordan Stahl who could play center. And then maybe they could have like a third line with one of those other guys I mentioned, like Howla, Dezingle, Warren Fogle is like, you know, seemed like he's pretty good. So like this team's pretty deep. They also have good defense. I like Carolina a lot for next year. Obviously, just Morazic and Reimer will need to hold up their ends of the bargains. I feel like I've been using that turn of phrase too much in this episode. I'm never going to say it again. Hold up your end of the bargain. If I say it once in the almanac, you get your money back. Okay, uh, let's now go to Vancouver. No, I'm canceling that. You're definitely going to say it. <laughs> okay, well, t- remind me to Betting on yourself is another, like, we've definitely hit a high watermark in terms of how many times we should say that in a single episode. Okay, definitely let me know, Brian, if I say any of those things in the almanac, because I don't want to have to refund all of this money after. Well, you, can, you can refund your half of the money. Okay. <laughs> uh, Vancouver signed Tyler Myers uh, for a big contract that a lot of people are upset about. Uh, but let's just look at the fantasy impact here. 31 points last season. 
Do you expect him to do the same? Maybe get more, maybe get less. Like, I feel like they've got Edler who's slotted in probably to start on the top power play. And then they have Quinton Hughes. And yes, his name is Quinton. We've looked this up as well, uh, who people are expecting to take over on the top power play. So I don't think there's any room for Myers to get that super prime deployment, but I don't know. What do you think? More than 31 points or is that what he is? Uh, like maybe he'll get a little more, you know, Myers had lost a few minutes of time on ice over the last four or five years. So maybe he gets some of them back in Vancouver uh, now that the Canucks have committed to him in a big way. And so that should help him collect a few more points, help his peripherals. Like I'm going to expect a little more from Tyler Myers than we've seen the last couple of years, but I think that's just going to be by virtue of him getting more minutes. I'm not getting any more excited about what his upside is than it has been in any of the past few seasons. Yeah, there was another defenseman I was talking about earlier that I was a little excited about. Oh, yeah, Brandon Montour. Who would you take, Brandon Montour or Tyler Myers? Oh, depends on the categories. I think Montour has a better shot at 40 points, but Myers has a better shot at more minutes, which is more peripheral. So, you know, pick your flavor. Okay, interesting. I think I'll go Montour. Yeah, I think me too. I'm not too high on Tyler Myers. Uh, Mason is telling us that maybe it's Nachos. So (laughs) Mason is a native Czech speaker. Damn, so I guess we should trust him. Oh, goddammit. We tried. Uh, okay, another trade here. Anisimov to the Sens for... Who was it? Who did Chicago get? Oh, Zach Smith. Okay, so uh, the thing with the Sens, like we talked about it, right? Is it possible that Artem Anisimov could end up now as like the top line, top power play centerman on Ottawa? Like he'd have to beat out, I guess, Colin White, I think is the front runner, uh, Pajot, Chris Tierney. Any fantasy value for Anisimov or I guess Zach Smith? Going to Chicago? <laughs> Unless your your league rewards penalty killers, then Artem Anisimov is probably not so helpful to you as an Ottawa sender. Maybe Zach Smith can be, you know, the, the guy that Anisimov was in Chicago for a couple of years where it's like, oh, look, he's playing with Patrick Kane tonight. Uh, go at him. He could get a point. But I don't even think that's the role he's going to play. It's crazy in Ottawa. Like Colin White can be number one center if he can handle it, which I don't know if he can. I don't know if they have anyone like Peugeot, Tierney. They could all be stop gaps, but they don't, I don't even think they have a number two center in Ottawa this year, but at least like the silver lining here is that the Sens have figured out how to tank, right? Iced an awful team finished last, but they've figured out the most important part, which is not to trade away your first round pick while you do those first two things. Yeah, so they'll probably be bad again next season. And people are saying that they have a really strong prospect pool. So maybe in two, three years, if management knows what they're doing, uh, maybe the Sens can bounce back. It's yeah, it's a big be... if. What do you think for uh, Shabbat next year? What are we going to be putting down in the Almanac? He had like 70-something points last season. Are we going to be putting down 40? Like, how's this guy going to get so many points with the guys he's going to be playing with? Yeah, it's it's almost, I feel like it's going to be like Anaheim last year. This is a team that not even good players will be able to succeed on. And they're like two good players on the team. So it might be even harder. I don't know. Like, I can't see him. 50 seems like the most possible, right? Who Name name their top power play unit. Okay. Uh, Brady Kachuk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thomas Shabbat. Yeah. Okay, so that's two. I just need three more. That should be easy, <laughs> right? Uh, give me uh, Colin White. Okay? Uh-huh. That's three. Let's throw in Bobby Ryan. <laughs> sure. And uh, let's end up with Tyler Ennis. <laughs> <laughs> Way to avoid naming Artem Anisimov. That was an easy out for you. Rudolph Balsers. Alex Ford. No, they have a couple actually guys. No, that's not fair, right? They had that. What was that guy's name? He has a fun name. That... Maybe like Drake Batherson. Yeah, Alex Batherson. Formanton can make it up. Or like, I don't know, um, Anthony Duclair. Like, I. the point is there is no first. Like, they're 
Their first power play is like a third power play. To be fair, less is because I don't want to sound super dumb next year when Ottawa's like better than we expect. Like it is possible that they have kind of all these no-name guys, but just because we haven't heard of them doesn't mean they're bad. And like uh, like a young, fast team could maybe be good against some teams that are slower. Like we talked about Minnesota having all these older guys. Maybe they won't be able to handle all the exciting youth that Ottawa can throw at them. I don't know. We'll yeah, see. but I, I think the other teams will be able to handle Nikita Zaitsev, Ron Hainsey, Mark Borowiecki, yeah, Craig Anderson, Anders Nielsen. Like it is, it is dire. And Nikita like, Zaitsev it, is okay, right? It's There's like some sort of um, like macabre quality to the Senators in 2019-20. Like it's going to be something that you like, you just want to watch for just how. Um, it's going to be wild. Yeah. Eric Brandstrom is supposed to be a really, that's what they got for Mark Stone, right? He's supposed to be really good. So we'll see if he can start. Maybe he'll be on the top unit. He could be, yeah. Uh, which goalie would you take, Craig Anderson or Anders Nilsson? Yeah, man, I think it's going to be a split. They'll probably try and trade one of them partway through the year. Hot take from Ryan in the chat room. Minnesota will finish below Ottawa. Oh, wow. That's a that's an incredible hot take. It's possible. I don't know. I wouldn't say Ottawa's like guaranteed to come last. There's going to be some competition there. But okay. For sure. <laughs> so let's end the show. Hope you guys enjoyed it, Brian. I think that's everything. Do you have any other off-season transactions that you want to discuss? Because after this... We're done. Like, we're not talking about these things anymore. We're prepping for the Almanac. We're getting excited for the Cupful. So this, this is your last chance. Oh, man. That makes it feel like super high stakes. Oh, no. we didn't talk about uh, Michael Furland going to Vancouver. <laughs> oh, well, we should talk about him. <laughs> he might be okay. Yeah. Uh, like oh, we, he and was... I guess... Go ahead. Sorry. Well, no. Well, why don't you interrupt me with three other questions? <laughs> no, Michael Furland, please. <laughs> Uh, well, like it, it's him or JT Miller, right? One of those guys could have a big year in the Vancouver top six. And of course, let's not forget Sven Berti, who I've taken late. Like there's a lot. And you look down the list and you see like uh, uh, Josh Levo and Nikolai Goldobin. Like there's all these guys who it's like, oh, maybe if they play with Pedersen, they'll have a really great season. Um, there's just a lot of them this year. So we'll see who, which of them ends up. So they all have like this upside, but they all have this possibility of falling completely flat. Yeah, but also don't forget, like, the second line, if you're playing with Bo Horvat, you know, centering you, it's not terrible. Like, so Furland ends up with Horvat, that could be okay. And and uh, Furland has also seen himself on top power plays in times when we, that surprised us. I guess at some point we'll hopefully talk about Jake Gardner signing somewhere. It's kind of weird that he's not signed yet. I wonder if uh, Patrick Marlowe will get signed. So, okay, maybe there'll be a couple more that we'll discuss as we go. But, uh, Brian, Mitch with that... Oh, yeah. Well, Mitch Marner, that's a huge one, right? We'll see if Toronto figures it out. Apparently, this trade that they just made recently, what is it? I read something on Roto World where like, they made a trade where they took on a contract, but for some reason, because it's long-term IR. It was oh, David yeah. Clarkson. Yeah, they got David Clarkson. Somehow that's going to help them sign Marner. And then it was a bunch of math I didn't really follow. But like, I don't know. Maybe they'll sign Marner soon. Anyways, let's end the show. So again, let me recap all of our big things coming up. So first of all, the cupful signups are open. We want you to get in there. You have it. Oh, yeah, there's a deadline, right? Oh, we could say more things about the cupful. There's a, we know the draft dates. Brian, while, while uh, you look this up while I'm blabbing for a bit, okay? We, let's tell people what we know what the draft date will be for the couple. It's the Sunday before the season starts, and we might have an option you'll see in the sign-up form that you might be able to also draft on the Saturday night before the season starts if we get enough interest. But yeah, uh, Sunday night before the season starts. Uh, the sign-up deadline is around September 12th. So you still have time. 
But also, yeah, you can sign up. So go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Sign up to be a patron of Keeping Carlson. Or if you already are a patron, then just check on the Facebook group or on Patreon. And you'll see very soon an announcement of how to sign up to play in the couple. And then our other big announcement is we are fast approaching the start of our recording of the Keeping Carlson second annual audio almanac nhl audio almanac i forget the names of our things but uh, that's going to be a lot of fun and it's not too late to pre-order and get in on a slow draft so keeping carlson.com slash almanac and if you want to sponsor a chapter keeping carlson.com slash sponsor so again keeping carlson.com slash patron slash almanac and slash sponsor should take you to everywhere you need to go brian you'll link to all of these in our show notes right so people will be able to just click links absolutely it'll be so easy okay so with that let's cue the outro music and Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeban Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and powered by our patrons, including our newest ones, who definitely knew there's a 10% patron discount on the Almanac. Ryan, John, Sergey, Fenner, Rory, Jack, Ollie, Michael, Brett, Mark, Ryan, Andy, Dennis, Patrick, Joe, Dylan, James, Elliot, Frederick, Jummy, Shell. This yeah. episode was researched with help from Dabra Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dabra Prospects, Natural Stat Trek, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, and Elite Prospects. Oh, and Roto World. Yes. Okay. Thank you, all of our resources. Thank you to all the new patrons. Brian, great job as always. Really excited to talk to you in a couple of weeks, along with Dave Benton and John Reed. And we're going to be having our couple rule change bracket episode. We're going to take all the suggestions of couple rule changes, and we're going to decide one of them is going to win the bracket and get implemented and be a new rule in the couple next season. It's going to be a wild, crazy podcast. I'm really excited for it. So we'll see you then. And until then, everyone, remember all those links I said before. And Brian, say your catchphrase. Let's get out of here. Yeah, also until then, keep on keeping Carl Sun. Woo!